All those who are holding tickets outside will get in as fast as they can. I'm speaking not to you, ladies and gentlemen, but I'm speaking to the crowd on the outside who seem to be standing rather reluctant to come in, and we're going to start this very soon. Welcome back to Worthy. My name is John. And I'm Ben. And today we're talking about the 31st Best Picture winner, Gigi, or Gigi. And before we do, we wanted to talk about, you know, something familiar with this film that a lot of people talk about, and that is a taboo topic, or a film, or an art piece, or some work of fiction that is taboo. And we wanted to talk a little bit about this because Gigi has topics that some may find inappropriate these days, especially in 2022, since the film takes place in 1900 and is about sex and sexuality and a young woman falling in love with an older man. So with that in mind, I wanted to talk about a couple films here, and I wanted to talk about how we as viewers should be a little bit disconnected when it comes to, or I shouldn't say disconnected, but disassociated to taboo topics, that we should look at them from the perspective of how the filmmakers are seeing them and presenting them, how the characters are interacting within the film, and overall, obviously, the filmic elements that make up the entire picture, and and whether we can, you know, not agree with a certain topic or a certain aspect of a film or a character's decision in a film, but still like a film. So, Ben, I wanted to just ask you off the top here if there's any kind of film that comes out to you that you think of as like a taboo topic. And I think there's two different kind of subsections you could kind of pick when we're talking about taboo films. And there's two different sections for me personally when I think of them. And I think of more artistic filmmakers, more auteur filmmakers like Stanley Kubrick who made Lolita or or David Cronenberg's Crash or Igmar Bergman's Persona. And then on the other side, you have something kind of trashy, like a Serbian film, the 8mm, things that are really raunchy and just about topics that are really taboo and, and are, may, are may not like, you know, honored as being such, such high art or by our tours, made by our tours or not. So, Ben, any films that jumped out to you? Any films that you love or hate the topics of the taboo topics in them? Yeah, I think when we talk about taboo and what, like, what is a taboo film, um, I was trying to like look up films like what IMDb listed and most of it just has to do with sex. Yeah. Um, so I think that's kind of hard like for today's standards to call a lot of it taboo. So it's like, well, what is it about sex that makes it taboo? So like you just said, like with Lolita, it's a, a young girl, you know, being groomed and being brought around by an older man. And then I also think of like Kubrick's uh, his last film, Eyes Wide Shut, which has to do with you know these like sub uh cultures of people who are in high society and how they deal with sex and then mm-hmm. the taboo uh, around that so i think like i i like the mind immediately jumps to there but then with modern day it's hard to kind of say like oh sex is taboo because everyone is so sex positive nowadays so it's really hard like i think that you'd have to go to like really like great lengths to go to like the really the fringe ideas of films and what filmmakers are trying to talk about to call it taboo so i think that word is it's hard to like also describe but when we are talking about with Gigi, the i think like the one sexual aspect of things that is taboo and you shouldn't be talking about and shouldn't be praised in an awards way which is about younger people specifically people under the age of 18 and older people who's over the age of 18 you know having sexual relationships with them i think like that's the boundary at least for me where i'm just like yeah that can't necessarily be praised and and if it is talked about has to be 
done in a very I want to use the word sophisticated, but maybe that's not the best word, you know, way of talking about these, you know, showing a story like that because it's so yeah. hard to for me to look at a movie like Gigi and we'll get into it and be like praise it so much because of the messaging that comes across from it. So that word taboo, I think, is really hard to define, but it obviously, I think, has to do with mostly sex and, and, and themes of that as to you know what like that's taboo for filmmakers in Hollywood. Yeah, it definitely is and I'm I'm glad you brought that up because it, it is about how delicate and how you kind of approach the topic I think and and whether, you know, the writer or the director is kind of like spewing the themes that like you may not agree with and whether that is done with some nuance or not is a huge deal. And I think that's why I wanted to separate from films like 50 Shades of Grey versus like Stanley Kubrick's Alita is because there's an artistic standard that I think comes with any Kubrick film and with a topic that you may not agree with, like a very similar topic to what we have in Gigi you may just be fascinated by how the story is told, how well it's acted. And I think you can get some of that from our film today. But I wanted to talk a little more about, you know, when a place or a film takes place in a certain time. And, you know, with Gigi, it takes place in exactly 1900 and also the time in which the film comes out in 1958 here. So with that in mind, like you have to take both of these in in your mind and kind of think about what time and place these characters are in and then also when this film was released and how that kind of directly changes your mind and I think a big deal about this is that it's a very controversial topic that the film's about and when you look at it today of course you're not going to agree with something that was happening over a hundred years ago and the, the cultural standards that were happening a hundred years ago so I think there is a huge gap of people just not addressing that or talking about that and, and that's a, a very specific way you should be critiquing art especially art that's dated and I wanted to just read a quick little quote here because I think it, it kind of summarizes exactly what I'm trying to hint at here and it's in her article on Gone with the Wind the film critic and author Molly Haskell noted that our view of films must and need to evolve over time she wrote films change we change context changes and that's all part of the ongoing and vital fascination of movies. So I felt that it was a necessary thing to read because I think we should always be educated as viewers. I always talk about how I don't like knowing that much going into a film. But, you know, if I'm presented with a taboo topic in a film, I think it's you need to know what, where this film is coming from, who made it, when it was made and when the story actually takes place. So, Ben, is there anything else you would like to add about taboo topics in film yeah just hearing that quote like i i do i get it and I, and I appreciate it and i agree with the sentiment that we change ideas change views change and that's all well and good and i think the other aspect of that with filmmaking is well is it a good film does it actually add to the art of filmmaking is it a good story that's being told and i think that what we'll find in this conversation about Gigi is that it doesn't necessarily match up. And I think like that's the thing to remember is like, yeah, ideas change. We can all have different opinions. We can acknowledge that 1958 social politics are not 2022 social politics, depending on where you are in the United States. <laughs> but at the same time, that doesn't necessarily mean that that makes it a good movie. And, and there are technical aspects to me that are vitally important to make it a good movie. And then when you talk about awarding it in the Oscars, the Emmys, Golden Globes, whatever, any award, you, you want it to be good. You want it to be substantial. You want it, there to be a reason, a true reason for why that movie gets the recognition that people think that it deserves. So 
We'll definitely get into that. So first, let me ask that question to you, John. Is Gigi worthy of the Best Picture Award of 1958? Gigi, weary of the conventions of Parisian society, a rich playboy and a youthful courtesan in training, enjoy a platonic friendship that may not stay platonic for long. The film is set during the turn of the 20th century. While in Bois de Boulogne, Henri Lachal remarks that in Paris, marriage is not the sole option for a wealthy young man like his nephew Gaston, who is bored with life. Gaston does enjoy spending time with Madame Alvarez and her granddaughter, the precocious carefree Gigi. Gigi's mother, a singer who is heard but never seen on screen, leaves her care mostly to Madame Alvarez. Following the family tradition, Madame Alvarez regularly sends Gigi to her sister, Alicia, Gigi's great aunt, to be groomed as a courtesan, which is a more dignified euphemism for a wealthy man's mistress. She learns proper etiquette and charm, but Gigi disdains the trivial love between a man and his mistress. She prefers having fun with Gaston, who she regards as an older brother. Like his uncle, Gaston is a known wealthy womanizer in Parisian high society. When his latest mistress has an affair with her ice skating instructor, Gaston publicly humiliates her, resulting in her fake attempted suicide. Gaston plans to retreat to the country, but his uncle insists he remains in Paris and attends even more parties. While playing cards with Gaston, Gigi wagers that if he loses, he must take her and her grandmother to the seaside for the weekend. Gaston agrees loses the bet, and the three travel to Treville. While Gaston and Gigi are having fun together, Henri and Madame Alvarez unexpectedly reunite and reminisce about their once passionate affair. As other women at the resort hold perfect poise with an air of boredom or disdain for anything unfamiliar, Gigi pulls Gaston out of his depressive rut with her carefree attitude. When Gaston goes to Monte Carlo, Great Aunt Alicia and Madame Alvarez scheme to turn Gigi into Gaston's mistress. Though initially dubious, Madame Alvarez agrees to Gigi being intensively trained before Gaston's return. Gigi accepts. When Gaston returns, he is uneasy when Gigi shows off her new womanly gown. Gaston insults the dress, preferring her juvenile outfits. Gigi mocks his taste in clothes. Offended, Gaston storms out, then quickly realizes his folly and returns to apologize. He offers to take Gigi to a tea at the reservoir, but Madame Alvarez interjects, telling Gaston that an unchaperoned Gigi being seen in public with him could damage her reputation. Angered, Gaston storms out again. He walks and reflects on Gigi, realizing he has developed a romantic desire for her. Although hesitant due to her young age, Gaston realizes that he loves Gigi. He wishes only to be near her, an unheard of behavior between a man and his mistress. Despite such convention, he proposes a generous business agreement to Madame Alvarez and Aunt Alicia for Gigi to become his mistress. The women are overjoyed by his offer, though Gigi is not. Gigi refuses, telling Gaston she does not seek celebrity status only to eventually be abandoned by him and become another man's mistress. She wants the relationship to remain platonic, but when Gaston suddenly reveals that he loves her, Gigi bursts into tears. She chastises him, saying if he truly loved her, he would never expose her to a mistress's uncertain life. Gaston leaves dejected and is angry at Madame Alvarez, claiming she only emphasized the, pro the proposition's sordidness. 
He then speaks of Henri, who says that Gigi's family has always been rather odd. Gigi later sends for Gaston and tells him that she would rather be miserable with him than without him, and agrees to the arrangement. When Gaston arrives for their final social outing, he is unexpectedly entranced by the transformed Gigi's elegant beauty. The couple goes to Maxim's restaurant and Gigi performs perfectly as his courtesan, which only upsets Gaston. After presenting her with an expensive diamond bracelet, he grows uneasy with the unrelenting scrutiny being heaped on them. Henri delivers a crushing blow when he, hear, when he congratulates Gaston on his new courtesan and remarks that Gigi is so delightful that she will likely keep him amused for months. Gaston, too in love with Gigi to subject her to an appalling life of uncertainty and social judgment, brusquely insists they leave. He drags Gigi up the stairs and into her grandmother's apartment. Sobbing hysterically, Gigi asks what she did wrong, but Gaston leaves without answering. After walking alone around Paris, Gaston realizes the depth of his love and soon returns. He asks Madame Alvarez for Gigi's hand in marriage, and Gigi is overjoyed, as is her grandmother. The final sequence returns to Henri, who proudly points out Gaston and Gigi in a horse carriage, elegant, beautiful, and happily married. Gigi is directed by Vincent Minnelli and uncredited sequences from Charles Walters. Written by Alan J. Lerner, based on the novella by Colette. Produced by Arthur Freed. Music by Andre Previn and Conrad Salinger. Cinematography by Joseph Ruttenberg with uncredited cinematography by George Barsky and Ray June. Film editing by Adrian Fazan. Casting by Bobby Webb. And production design by Cecil Beaton. Gigi stars Leslie Caron as Gigi. Marie Chevalier as Henri Lachal. Luis Jordan as Gaston Lachal. Hermione Gingold as Madame Alvarez. Ava Gabor as Leanne. Isabel Jeans as Aunt Alicia. So Gigi, the 1958 Best Picture winner. A uh, lot to talk about, a lot to break down. But for the first time on a main episode of Worthy, we have a guest. And we have a guest, uh, Austin Gold. Uh, we know Austin from our times back in college. So without further ado, here's Austin Gold. Hello. Hey, what's going on? So um, Austin, you are... We've posted about Gigi. We've talked on Instagram. We you slid into our DMs a few times, and uh, you like Gigi. So I just want to know what it is about Gigi that you like and you're fascinated by. Because when we and when me and John have talked about it and watched it, we had some negative feelings. So we just wanted to get your perspective and uh, what you're doing uh, outside of just like being a guest on our podcast. So just want to kick it over to you. Just initial thoughts on the movie. Uh, yeah. Well. Uh, I first heard about the movie when I was, you know, like in high school, really getting into film. And I saw this best picture winner that I had never heard of and saw that it won like nine Oscars, which how does a movie win nine Oscars yet? I've never heard of this. <laughs> I've never heard it even referenced. Yeah. So I watched it and I understood why it wasn't as well known as some of the others, but I also understood, I think, why it won Best Picture. I was fully enamored with the music in it. Uh, I wound up buying it on CD, the original soundtrack and score, which, uh, I mean, there's a video component when we're recording, but for the listeners, I'm currently holding the <laughs> CD right now. But uh, John and Ben will notice it is empty because the CD is sitting in my car. So. <laughs> 
We love that. So where do you start? Do you start right at the top, go all the way through, or you jump to a, a specific yeah, you have like track? A favorite here? song? Yeah. Uh, if there's one that's in my head, I'll jump to that. But otherwise, you know, it's very pleasant to listen to while stuck in LA traffic. I'll say that. And uh, I think we asked this off uh, off mic, but is this your favorite music movie musical? Do you, like, how, like, where does it rank for you in terms of all time musicals? At least in terms uh, of Austin. In terms of movie musicals, it's it's either like at the bottom or just missing my top 10 movie musicals. Okay. But I will say it has my favorite songs of any original movie musical, which right. I, is very specific. It is very specific, but, yeah. but I love that. And, and you seem to be a, a great lover of music. I can see the posters behind you are a bunch of artists and albums. So yeah. tell us about like, your, your experience with music. You worked in the radio station at our college as well, right? Uh, yeah, I'm actually wearing a WICB shirt right now. Representing. college radio station. Oh, yeah. Yeah, so tell us about your love of music, how that kind of started, and how you kind of maybe first got introduced to musicals and and just... I know, think just movies in general. Yeah, and movies in general. Uh, actually, I got into my love of movies from my love of music. Uh, growing up, I was a huge uh, music fan, and in middle school, I was one of those classic rock kids. And uh, I went to a website where it had like 100 greatest classic rock albums. But then also on the site, it had a 100 greatest movie list. So I thought, oh, I'm curious how many of these I've seen. Uh, I think I saw two out of the 100. (laughs) And I was surprised that I'd seen so few and how few that I'd even heard of. So I, you know, so went to Blockbuster and I rented one of the few that I had heard of, which was Psycho. Okay. Which fella loved it. And then uh, after that, I rented The Birds, which I also loved. And I remember when I rented that, my grandma was staying with us at that time. She refused to watch it because that movie scared her when it originally came out. <laughs> and then from there, I saw 12 Angry Men and uh, The Manchurian Candidate, Citizen Kane. And I was like, there's something really special going on here. <laughs> That's awesome. It sounds similar to even my own upbringing classic rock going to classic films psycho is a big one for me uh growing up and i think my final question before we get into Gigi is um and this is just from us talking on instagram and you following us pretty much since day one is have you watched all the best picture winners before are you uh caught up to the list or are you actually going through the journey like bits and pieces here and there uh i've seen most uh, probably 70 or 80 okay best picture winners yeah, we'll have to give you access to our, what we call it, the sheet, the oh, uh, the, the yeah. doc, our main doc with the entire listing. And this psycho has literally organized Psycho-over everything <laughs> perfectly and has all the information laid out. So. Yeah, uh, Maya, and you might have heard the story, but, and I'll repeat it again just for everyone who listens. But yeah, over the pandemic, like this was my pandemic project of like, oh, I just want to watch all the movies. Then me and John talked and it was like, oh, well, we've always wanted to have a podcast and and this felt like a natural thing to talk about so this is very specific but it's been fun it feels like almost a second film school and i'm sure hearing the movies that you list off that you watch growing up like that even that's its own film school so i think we're on the same page of like our love for old hollywood and like the importance of it uh to today's movies and even music theater what you know whatever you want to talk about you know yeah so, uh, yes, yeah, so let's jump into Gigi. Uh, and the structure we were going to have for this podcast was to go um, song by song. 
uh, musical by musical number. So the first one is um, the intro uh, with our character Henri, uh, and that is "Thank Heaven for Little Girls." Um, <laughs> I'm gonna let you guys start this off, and I'll interject. Uh, yeah. So John, yeah, why don't you take this off? I'll jump into this because this is a hot topic for some. Uh, we talked and opened the podcast here talking about taboo films and, you know, whether you may not agree with a certain plot or certain character, there's still aspects of things to enjoy. And I think Thank Heaven for Little Girls is kind of a light, whimsical song without considering just the lyrics. I think when you break down the lyrics, you'll see that it's not as creepy as it sounds. I'm sure, Austin, you feel that same way. But it is kind of a joyful song. I think it feels a little different after you watch the film and go through the entire plot. But starting the film, I, I it was a nice, you know, light entrance into the world. I like how Henri or Henri is showing us into this world and its beautiful Parisian city. But Austin, tell me what you think about "Thank Heaven for Little Girls." Uh, I agree with you that when you look into the lyrics, it's not as creepy as it seems. Mm -hmm. That being said, it's still a very creepy song. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I think that's... Yeah, go ahead. But I I think that kind of gets into the weird thing about this film is that the song is undoubtedly creepy, but it's also one of the catchiest songs ever written. (laughs) I can't lie. I've been singing it ever oh, since I've yeah, seen this movie. <laughs> yeah, I, I. This is where I struggle with because I jump into that in the movie immediately, and yeah, uh, be, you know, being I think of the the times that we're in and like, social consciousness, just immediately being hit with an older white man being thank heaven for little girls, <laughs> is where I'm like, oh boy, where like what am I getting myself into? Like I remember first watching it. I was like, okay, I get it. 1958, younger girls, older man, like that's a relationship thing that happens. And um, but then when I got into it, and then just thinking about it more and more, I was like, is he talking about that he, you know, 16 year olds, 18 year olds, <laughs> or is he like, oh, well, thank heaven for the eight year olds because they're gonna grow up to be beautiful women. And that's where I'm like, okay, like that, like that was my first red flag of this movie where I get it, it's catchy and. It's a, you know an old man who's presenting himself to be sweet, but then I'm like, well, this is also kind of horrifying. Uh, at least when I thought about it. So hearing your perspectives, I get it. That's a little catchy and <laughs> whimsical and fun. Yeah, uh, because it it starts off the movie. It's there's certainly a shock to it. <laughs> yeah, that I can understand if that shock doesn't wear off for the rest of the runtime because it's so out of the gate. Yeah, yeah. It, it it's very in your face. Like this movie is going to be about a young girl and a young and young girls falling in love. And I think that I I think I anticipated. Okay, maybe there's a younger guy, you know, that she could fall in love with, and like the, it's about her. But then the story it kind of throws you for a loop. Also, and we'll get into is like she kind of goes to the side. Like Gigi, you see her, you see Leslie Karen, like. I play it's so she is almost like playing <laughs> with them which I know she's 16 but they're just playing around like in a field together yeah and it's like so I'm expecting the story really to be the focus on her but it gets away and shifts away to the the male perspective and Gaston's perspective of the whole story and that's where again that whole idea gets reinforced like of like thank heaven for little girls it's like should I we be thanking heaven for young children <laughs> um, but that's a great question because this whole film because 
kind of like is guided through Henri's point of view and he's the one kind of guiding us into this world so what did you guys think of that the way he was kind of like showing us into the world and why is it him in particular was the biggest question that I felt Austin what do you think uh I think it's him in particular because of the casting of Maurice Chevalier. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know if you're particularly familiar with his film work, but uh, in the early sound years, he was like a huge musical star, movie musical star. And in his films, he would often direct address the camera. And this is one of his first films back after a long hiatus. So I think they are kind of using that nostalgia of him being like a musical star narrating his own films, singing directly to camera mm-hmm. to kind of be like, hey, Maurice Chevalier is back and here's he's going to be our guide into this world and into this story. So let me ask you, like from a film standpoint, do you like it when the character does break that fourth wall? I mean, this is very breaking the fourth wall throughout this entire movie. And just so just the way he's presented, is that is that something you like in like other films when a character does that? Or is that something that kind of takes you out of it? Cause for me, it, it does take me out of the movie for a hot second. Um, when a character is referencing what's going on like that. Uh, I think that it, it all depends on how it's used. And I think here it's used rather well because he's never like winking at a camera mid scene. He's <laughs> always just introducing the situation or just singing a song directly to camera. Mm-hmm. He's never like making snide remarks. He's not doing like a gym look to the camera. Yeah, <laughs> right. He's not deadpooling it. Yeah. Yeah, no, I, I think that's a, a great point. It also bookends the film, right? He introduces us and then kind of takes us away and says, that's it. Like, it's our fairy tale. Like, you can close the book at the end. And he's really joyful and it's a really, I think, sweet and charming performance, even though he's yeah. singing about loving little girls. I think that song in general, if it was just about like loving children and the, like the youthfulness of just nature and, you know, growing up, it would feel a lot different than it does. Yeah. But focusing it on on women makes it rough. Yeah. And then also yeah. throughout the movie, he all, he's constantly surrounding himself by younger women. And, you know, the the song he has with uh, Gigi's grandmother, it obviously shows that he had a past with her and probably tons of other women. But he is still maintaining to this youthful idea. And and I think that sometimes, and I think I keep on coming back to today's, you know, points of view, which we, me and John talked about in the beginning that times do change. You know, ideas do change and and people change and the sentiments all around change. But then at the same time, it's, he's still an older, like he has to be what in his seventies in this, at the time of this movie was made. I, I think he was 70 or about to reach 70. Right. So it's, I think, just in my head like seeing that you can't just help feeling like creepy old guy younger woman like where's the line there almost but i also do understand love is love but also at the same time it's very creepy for an older man (laughs) to be you know constantly hounding after little girls younger women yes what i will say about that is that the women that the film pairs him with are they're not five or six or seven they're like late 20s early 30s which i mean still is not great to have like a 70 year old with a late 20s but it's okay we're certainly more okay yeah i I definitely yeah yeah, i definitely can hear that um yeah and where where his character is coming from is that in the intro just before he starts singing he says there are some who do who do not marry and some who will not marry he falls into the will not marry. He's a bachelor. He loves being a bachelor. Uh, 
previous Maurice Chevalier films, he always plays like a suave playboy kind of character. And this kind of feels like what happens to that character once they're an older man. Yeah, I love that. And I loved his relationship with Gaston because it was this weird kind of bro-y trying to show him the world, but he's a little odd the way he crosses the line some lo- sometimes. And we have the next song, which is It's a Bore with Gaston and Henri, and they're riding with this insane, <laughs> with insane compositing in the background of them riding through the Eiffel Tower. It's the lowest low angle <laughs> shot I've ever seen. <laughs> so, Austin, I'm curious, what do you think of this song in particular and also some of the visuals? It really goes out there to kind of show off Paris. Uh, well, what I will say about the Eiffel Tower, and they even reference the Eiffel Tower, like how cool the Eiffel Tower is yeah. in the song. Yeah. Uh, this movie takes place in 1900. Uh, and the Eiffel Tower, I think, was only built in the late 1880s or early ni- or early 1890s. So the Eiffel Tower is still a relatively new thing. Mm. <laughs> and so that's why he's so surprised when he's like, yeah, the Eiffel Tower doesn't excite me. Like, like to use an example from our childhood, Ben, I know we grew up in the same like New York suburb area. Yeah. Do you remember how big of a deal King Dakar was when it was built? <laughs> yeah. Remember how big of a deal the Palisades Mall was when that was built? Like, yeah. Like, yeah, I, I definitely, I do, I hear that. And, I, and that's really funny pointed out because there have been times in other movies that we've talked about where some trivia or you know note you'll find is like, well, they talked about this, but that didn't even happen until like 50 years later. Yeah, so it is funny that that is in there because you probably would expect the Eiffel Tower to be like, oh my God, this new structure is here. and uh, It's pretty fantastic. I do have to say, though, um, and I've said the lowest low angle shot. So, like, that's part of like these musical bits and scenes that I have an issue with is like they don't do enough coverage and they just do like one angle the entire time. So, when it comes to like the, you know, musical aspect of these movies, there's nothing like. There's no wow factor. There's no pizzazz to it. And then on top of that, I didn't find Gaston's like performance or the way he si- the way he sings. It's very um, like it's spoken word almost. So that's where it loses me because you know my musicals, the stuff I love, I want it to be big and grand, and this is very subtle uh, with the musical aspect of the film. Yeah, uh, I certainly don't disagree with that. Uh, I mean, the constant. It, he's less singing and more just rhythmically speaking. Right. I think that's fair, though. I think it's a different artistic style, whether you enjoy it or not. Like you said, Ben, that's really up to you. I thought it was like a nice change of pace, and I think some of the lyricism is, is quite lovely and, and kind of cute and charming at times. But, uh, yeah, it's kind of distracting visually, I think. I think while there's not much movement, they try to add all the movement and the crazy compositing and showing the Eiffel Tower in the background. I found it kind of, like, visually interesting, but not in a way (laughs) where I was grounded within the story. It was more like, this is so crazy looking, like some of the birds compositing from from Hitchcock, like you were talking about earlier. It's it's wild and visually interesting, but not in a way that I found was grounded <laughs> in reality. Yeah. Right? And I, and I think also, and there there's other parts where I want to bring it up, is the cinemascope aspect of the movie to have such a big frame and to not really use it. Like, you could have... if It would have been one thing if they were in this carriage riding around singing and they and the background was more level with them and you see the streets of Paris you see him actually going around you know even if it was a composite of Paris 
uh, doing that. But instead, you just you're looking up at the sky the whole time. And it, honestly, you could have shot that on a nice older looking part of New York that it probably could have <laughs> doubled as that uh, to me. So or even like London. Um, so I don't know. I just these technical aspects keep on coming back to me and like how I feel about the movie as well as the movie and, and the story aspect, uh, the musical parts in the story. But the technical aspects of the me totally takes me out of it because Manelli kicked ass in American in Paris. Um, I don't know how you feel about that movie. We've never talked about it, but I, he like all the technical aspects of that movie are great. And then you get this and it's, it feels like it's two totally different directors approaching it. Yeah. Uh, I do really like an American in Paris. And uh, I do think that Vincent Minnelli is a great musical director, even here, or director of musicals, rather, uh, even here. Uh, he's also made uh, The Bandwagon, which great Fred Astaire movie, uh, and also my favorite of his film, musical or non-musical, Meet Me in St. Louis. And I think the biggest thing that separates this film and with An American in Paris and The Bandwagon is that the bandwagon has Fred Astaire. American in Paris has Gene Kelly. This is not a dance-centric movie. Both of those films are very much centered around we are going to watch these amazing dancers dance. That's not what this movie is. Well, I think that's a good transition to the next number, which is The Parisians, which is a Gigi number. And Gigi's played by Leslie Karen, And she's a great ballerina. You see her skills on full display in, in American in Paris. Like, me and John were blown away by it. I'm not... A dance person i've been i've seen uh like dance performances like my little sister did dance and completely bored by that i i've tried to get into it but i so i appreciate your, the, your little sister wasn't as good as leslie Caron. no no <laughs> but but what i'm saying is like the idea of, of dance as an art form has never really a, appealed to me but in american in paris it did so like that was really that was really refreshing and nice to have and then knowing that you know the person that plays Gigi could have been yeah, you know, she has those talents. They didn't even use it. She barely even, really even moves during her musical numbers is disappointing. So, and that goes back to the whole aspect of there's no wow factor in the num in the musical numbers. It is odd because it feels almost intentional that they cast her and and have her sit for so much of the film, and it it's odd because it is another MGM musical as well. So we've kind of come accustomed to it, and from our point of view, going through the years of these Oscars, it's kind of we were going to think so much as if this were an American Paris and we're going to compare it so much to that. But I think there is a difference in the, in the two, right? And, and there's a difference in the genre, whether you want to have it to be all about dancing or combining the two, like singing in the rain. Everyone always says that's the greatest musical of all time. And I think it's so drastically different from this, that people hate on this movie because of that. So Austin, do you think musicals need dancing? Do you think it's necessary to, to create a great, stunning musical? Uh, it certainly helps. <laughs> uh, I think that uh, this, uh, I mean, the lack of dancing, I certainly think is a flaw in this film. But at the same time, if you did have a number where Leslie Caron was able to do everything that she's able to do, it would just make the lack of dancing in every other number stick out that much more. Yeah, I, I think that's totally fair. But to go like to the whole other end of the spectrum where you don't have it feels sort of lazy, you know. And the the second movie that we talked about on the podcast, uh, Broadway Melody, we really were down on it because of the lack of choreography. We'll give it like some 
uh, wiggle room because it was from 1929 and not many people were making musicals like to the uh, extent that like we know of it today. But at the same time, like it is 1958, I I do ex- expect some movement choreography. I don't think she needs to go crazy all over the place, but there's got to be something. I mean, and I do like the the Parisians number a lot, but when her just walking around just in a garden yelling at statues doesn't like that it still doesn't do enough for me uh, so i don't know how you guys felt even about like that because that's like somewhat choreography somewhat you know blocking and movement in the movie uh yeah i mean for this number they cut to so many different locations because it is gg kind of walking around paris so i guess choreography would be difficult to like have like all this choreography well traditional choreography within all these different spaces uh, they do a similar thing later on, which we'll get to at a different number. But yeah, uh, I do think that she does a good job kind of like very poutily walking through everywhere, just kind of being like, I don't like this society. <laughs> so very... I think that I think that she does a great job with what she's given. But I mean, rewatching it now that I've seen an American in Paris, I've seen Lily, uh, like knowing what Leslie Caron can do, it is a little frustrating that is the most that she is given. Yeah, that's fair. I think in terms of dancing, I, I totally agree with that and feel that. I think in terms of an actual performance and acting performance, I think this is definitely a better performance from her than in American in Paris. And I, I know you so, like the movie better. I like the movie better. But do you agree with that, Ben? Uh, not really. And the other part of it, um, I'm trying to remember like how she didn't really sing that like too much in American in Paris. I'm trying to start off the top of my head, but like even in this movie they completely dubbed all of her singing um so coming to find out they were dubbed the, with a singer betty Wan, and and Caron was like shocked <laughs> that she did all of this work only for them to just dub it over uh in the end which i feel like that's a huge slap in the face and yeah I, like i know it is i know like in disney like animations they always use a different voice because they want the big star but that's like a an animation and like you're physically seeing her and I can appreciate that the sound work to have to dub mm-hmm. it over and, and have to do all that, uh, you know, all that work on it. But at the same time, it's like, why? Like she is a great, she's a really good talent. So like, why misuse her like, like that? It just feels that again, like it go, I go back to sentiment. Like Manelli just feel, it felt like it was lazy, his approach to it. And I don't know if it was like MGM was like, well, here's a bunch of money, make another musical. We don't care. You're Manelli. You'll make money off of this type of thing. Cause from what I've read in, in, and research it seems like this movie is put together fairly quickly from all aspects so that's where i don't know if they were rushed or if he just was like i don't give that much of a shit i'm gonna make my money regardless you know uh with this so that's where the the end product of it feels sort of oh well here you go here's another musical yeah well i mean with her dubbing it is certainly strange because leslie caron can sing and she does have that great french accent uh So it is kind of a wonder why they even chose to dub her in the first place. Uh, But uh, on this CD version that I have here, they do have a couple bonus tracks with her original vocals in it. And she does sound good in it. Like, I wouldn't think you would need to replace her. But having said that, Betty Wanda does sound better. Interesting. It's a strange decision to make, but it, it improves the film overall. I guess to use a modern comparison, uh, in the movie Her, uh, Samantha Morton was originally the voice of the computer. 
and throughout the entire filming that was the voice they used and up until like they were in post-production they just felt something was missing and they got Scarlett Johansson to replace her Samantha Morton's a great actress and I'm sure it sounded fine but they just felt that there was a way that it could be improved Wow, that's fascinating. I didn't know that. See, this is why we knew you'd be a great addition. <laughs> yeah, you own the CD. Like, this is amazing. I love that. I own the CD. I own a DVD of it, too. Oh, hell yeah. The <laughs> finest quality of, on DVD. Are you going to get that 4K release, too? Uh, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know if I want to spend 4K on the money of this subject. <laughs> All right, let's move on to the next kind of tiny... Uh, it's. Yeah, go well, ahead. Before we move on to the next number, I do think that there's a very interesting comparison between It's a Bore and The Parisians. Okay. I think these two songs uh, form a very similar purpose where it's getting out the idea that both Gaston and Gigi do not like the, conf- the conforms of the society that they are within. It's a Bore is Gaston saying, like, all this stuff that you think is cool and is exciting, it's not really for me. Mm-hmm. And Gigi, this is basically the same thing. Like, I don't understand the Parisians. I don't understand why you all care about these material things. It's not her bag. And uh, also, we also get a similar comparison where Gaston is seeing it uh, with his uncle, who's kind of like his mentor figure. Uh, she sings this just after leaving her aunt, who's similarly teaching her how to be a proper society woman. Wait, uh, so we're bit. <laughs> I, I want to. Well, you finish what you're saying. I want to. Sorry for interrupting, but I do want to. No, no, I, I was pretty much done. So go, go on. So you said her aunt to be a proper high society woman. So that's yes. that's the other another part of this movie that completely loses it for me because they nicely say she's trained to be a courtesan to be up yes. in high society. She's really just getting pimped out. Let's just put call a spade a spade. <laughs> they are literally pimping out a 16-year-old girl so she can sleep with an older socialite so that way their family is more highly regarded. Yep. <laughs> Alright, I just... <laughs> it's, it's not great. Not great. <laughs> I, that, I just... I need to put that out there because like... Because that's the other aspect of it. Like, it's, after seeing Oh, Thank Heaven for Little Girls, Thank Heaven that Gigi is being... You know, done up and, and being taught how to put herself into society, which is just it's disturbing. And that and again, like that's where it loses it for me. And that's where like you know you you make a great comparison between it's a bore and the Parisians, and and I really like that idea. But then I'm just like, and she's getting pimped out, and thank heaven for <laughs> little girl. Like that's where I'm like, okay, it takes myself yeah. out of the movie, and um, yeah, it, it adds to my feelings. Of it. I think that makes perfect sense, and and Buzzfeed feels the same way. This is their lowest ranked <laughs> film. I saw that. And that led to controversy, and there's even a, an article that I read that was very actually well-written from a feminist point of view who loves Gigi and like how much she thinks that this, this film is criminally underrated. And she looks at this as kind of a very feminist film where Gigi is trying to break the norms and break society. Yeah. And I certainly see it from that perspective. I mean, the reason why she's getting, quote-unquote, pimped out, uh, I feel like that's a strong way of saying it. She's basically... <laughs> yeah. She's basically being taught like her family is not good enough for the upper class to marry, but they are good enough that they could take her as a mistress. Which is none of of which we agree with, but in 1900 Paris. Yeah, I'm not not defending that at all. It still blows my mind. It it still blows my mind. What's really interesting is that this is 1900 Paris, but 
this is one of the most popular films of 1958, nine Academy Awards, and it's beloved at the time. So there's clearly people are relating to this even in 1958. Whether that's a good thing or something we can like further dig into, I'm sure there's so much we can say about that. And and whether the culture in, in America still kind of reflected that kind of notion of kind of trying to punch above your weight class and try to get money almost from the upper class. Not that I feel like this film is truly fully representing that, but I think there's something in, to, in that, and it's kind of disturbing, maybe in a way, that in 1958 this was kind of an agreeable notion, but... We couldn't just have had, like, a, <laughs> you know, a, a young woman in her 20s, like, maybe she, like, worked as... And as like a housekeeper, maybe, why couldn't she be the person we sent to this around <laughs> instead of a 16 year old girl? That's called Made in Manhattan with J-Lo. And that exists already. Great movie. <laughs> <laughs> Can we do a podcast about that? <laughs> um, but let's get to uh, the next song. Uh, yeah, John. we're talking about the gossip. Well, one, one more thing I want to say about the Parisians. Yeah. One of my favorite things in any number is how she doesn't really pronounce the R in Parisians. It's Parisians. Parisians, yeah. Just a little, a little touch that I love. <laughs> I love the accents in this film. It's the, there's the dumb American in me who loves a good accent. I love it. <laughs> and the gossips, we get like a crowd of accents as you know. We have Gaston walking through with his girlfriend at the time, and everyone's kind of like judging them in this bar, or this restaurant. And what I found a little bit weird about this scene is that it were kind of like hearing their whispering as Gaston's walking through with his date and then all of a sudden it kind of like cuts and it cuts to silence and it was honestly like so jarring for me that it just kept taking me out of the film because it just felt like the film wasn't properly mixed and it kind of feels that way throughout this film for me is where the audio is a little iffy and there's like background noise missing from some scenes and some like you know glue to kind of tie all the audio actually together um, but yeah, there's not too much to say. Do you guys have anything to say about this quick little the gossips as they're they're walking in the restaurant? Uh, well, on the note of there's no background, I think that's certainly an issue with musicals of this era. Definitely, is that there wasn't like now, like if we have a musical number in a film and like someone drops a fork in the background, you you'll hear that, yeah, because that could very easily be added in. Sure. Whereas back then, they would just kind of like throw in the musical track. Yeah. And I think if I read correctly that the music wasn't finished by the time or they weren't singing directly. They were trying to sing along with the music, right? They weren't actually uh, yeah, singing they, on set, right? They also. had recorded like piano demos of all the songs yeah, with right. all the cast singing, including Leslie Caron. They had her vocals in when they were filming. So they were all, they were filming to the piano demos. The All the orchestrations were added in afterwards. And a lot of times they actually had to re-record the vocals they had found a better idea for it. yeah and, and that's pretty common practice i remember hearing with like the most recently Miz in what 2011 2012 like they would just wear earpieces with someone like playing the piano along with them and, th- and that was uh recorded live if i'm not mistaken with that one but um yeah i think that kind of goes back to what i was saying before this movie feels like they were building the track as the train was going 100 miles an hour down it uh, and, it, and it shows but actually talking about the gossips this is actually one of the musical numbers I liked and I did like the staging of everybody whispering everyone's like talking about Gaston <laughs> and, and I, I like that because that that visually I could see that on a Broadway stage yeah. I could see how that is played out and like that was that was cool and also um, I forget the name of the restaurant right now but that was like a real restaurant with all the mirrors yeah. and like so vaccines that, yeah vaccines yeah. right so like seeing it's so, like that was a cool setting I definitely 
like that I appreciated. That was a good number for me because I liked how that was staged and that added um, to the story itself. Yeah, and with the staging of that number, it's especially complicated because of all the mirrored walls within the restaurant. Yeah. So, like, it's kind of a miracle that you don't see any of the crew within the yeah, mirrors. Definitely. Yeah, it's like it's almost yeah, it's almost as if like they had panned any more to the right, you would have seen something. Yeah, I but think they I, got it right I, on. I think I read somewhere that they use like suction cups to put like the lights on. Uh, so at least like that would like blend in because obviously you can have like all those stands. And yeah, you would have seen those immediately. That's hilarious. Uh, but yeah, yeah. I, I can definitely appreciate that technical aspect. <laughs> like that you didn't see the camera in the mirrors. Yeah, that's probably one of my yeah. favorite part of Manelli's directing. Or if we can credit him this in particular, or if it's just the set designer. But how packed the frames are. While we don't have a lot of movement and dancing, the interiors I find are, are filled with life. Like filled with really bright colors like the the aunt's house is all red and it's very vibrant or is, is the grandma's it's house grandma's. the grandma's house is so, so vibrantly red. i do want to comment on that because that was actually i don't love all that red there's a lot of red <laughs> i love that red so much. It, 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 it's so much red and i that goes also back to my issue with the cinemascope use is because you have these like all right it's all red put that aside but then like part, sometimes there'll be like an object in the middle of the screen that like cuts it in half like in the grandma's house, there's just a lamp that just hangs in the middle that's like so it's like too much in the foreground almost that it cuts off like the background of the apartment and like that aspect I didn't love. He, he, there's a few other times where it's just directly in the middle, like the foreground, there's something there, but the action is more in the middle towards the back of the frame. So it just feels like a misuse. And in the last movie we talked about on the bridge on the River Kwai, like David Lean masterfully put stuff in the background of the frame that like made sense to the story but let the you know what's in front of it actually be what's going on so like i love that use of cinemascope whereas this feels like all right cinemascope on the pedestal do the scene and i know there's a lot of long yeah. takes and I, I can appreciate that but for using something that's so like special to how to visually represent something it feels again like well we have this technology and um just hit record and that's it that's all we got to do <laughs> Yeah, I do think that uh, Manelli is certainly a more superficial director than David Lean was and didn't have quite the eye for framing that Lean had. Uh, absolutely. Uh, however, uh, with this film in particular, what uh, production the production and costume designer Cecil Beaton did is just kind of throw as many beautiful things as possible into the frame. And I think that makes up for the lack of dynamic camera work is that even though the camera's not moving, there's always something great to draw your eye to. But does that then also take away from the story itself, almost, if you're so visually distracted? Like, I mean, there certainly is a, a potential that was lost uh, by doing that, but part of Minnelli's whole directing style is watching people perform. Like, uh, not as much in, in American Paris, but in a lot of his other films, it's like, very wide shots, very long takes where you can see, you know, the full body move. You can see the whole room. And, you know, if you were never able to like go to a Broadway show, this is kind of as close to that as you'd be able to get. Yeah, I think that's totally fair. And I, I really do like how jam packed everything is. It's cluttered, it's crazy and wild. And I think that kind of says something about Parisians and, and the life they have there and how much they care about art and society and friendships more than yeah. actual work most of the time. 
Uh, it also adds to the idea of what a material society exactly, is. Exactly, yeah. It is very much in line with kind of what the film is about as well. But is that the Parisian society or is that American society? Or is that just society in general? I think that is what this movie thinks of 1900 Paris. Okay. <laughs> All right. Yeah, I think that's totally fair. Um, a good way to think about it. So, uh, so what the next number we have is she is not thinking of me. Yeah, so we have... Following the same scene in Maxims, we have them sitting down together, and it's maybe one of my favorite moments where we have uh, Luis Jordan who's singing to himself, and again, we have almost a fourth wall break because we have voiceover in a way where he's kind of singing to himself. I love that aspect. I thought it was really charming and unique for a musical. You know, he's trying to bottle in his thoughts, and then eventually he sings as well during the song. So, Austin, what do you think of uh, She Is Not Thinking of Me? Uh, I really like that number, and I think that gets us further into Gaston's head. Because uh, the woman is not excited to be with Gaston. She's just there to be excited with a wealthy man and to be a part of this restaurant, to be a part of this scene. So he's saying, like, she is very excited, but it's not because of me. Yeah, yeah. It's a, it's a funny, like, goofy... And I found, like, the humor in this film to be, like, my favorite aspect. I found myself, like, laughing throughout this song with uh, the, the way they're rhyming throughout the, the song and, and how goofy it is and how ridiculous the, the woman he is, it, like, is acting in the restaurant and clearly, like, flirting with other men at the same time. I thought it was goofy and charming. What about you, Ben? I think that's... And I hate to always be the Debbie Downer, but, like, again, <laughs> it, it just goes back to, like, like, why couldn't they have had him, like, stand up and do, like, everyone freezes, but he's walking around the restaurant... Uh, kind of like singing about like why um, you know why she isn't thinking of him like do the same thing but he's moving around like because at the end of the movie he's not singing but he's walking around in these cool you know backdrops of Paris so it's you like I don't know I feel like again there could have been more he, he could he could have been done there could have been something more to it with this scene in particular I think that the staticness of it actually works to its benefit that even if the rest of the numbers had like this crazy camera work and choreography, this one should still be shot the way it is because Gaston does not want to be there. He's like a little kid that's like frustrated that his mom took him somewhere. So he's just sitting in his chair. He's stewing. He's singing through his teeth, which is a great thing that they did here. So when we, so talking about Gaston, like, you know, right. He wants to get like, does, do you think he wants to get out of society? Cause you know, because at the same time, when he does finally get to romance of Gigi and, and take her out, he goes to the same exact places. He does the same exact things he would with the women that he's so fed up with that he finds boring. So it feel so it's like, what do you want, Gaston? Because it feels like you're trying to it's trying one of those stories where oh, I don't want to be involved in high society, but I really do want to be part of high society because I get all these benefits from it. Uh, I. I'll dig into that more when we get there plot-wise, but I do think that there's a very good reason why they have it set up that way. And they kind of set up some subtle things in this number. Like the date that he has, played by uh, Ava Gabor, uh, the, all the things that she's doing at the restaurant, like the his cigar, like pouring the coffee, that's all things that Gigi will later be taught to do. She's kind of, it's, it's kind of showing us this is the mold that they are trying to fit Gigi within. Yeah, I think that's really fair. And 
for me, it's kind of like a balance of I'm finding kind of humor and there's a charm to these, this musical number in the scene. But on the dramatic side, I just don't care about Gaston's character and, and his plot because I just don't really find it very interesting about a man who's trying to find like the perfect woman. It's not really like the most interesting dramatic plot. And I think that's fair. I don't think the film is trying to be any more heightened than simply a, a kind of beautiful uh, dramatic uh, musical while also being a love story it's not trying to be a drama and it's not trying to be that dramatic but this scene kind of I just want more from Gaston like I want to learn more about him like what does he actually like we hear so much about what he hates and he acts very much more like a child than Gigi does and I think that's definitely intentional the way he acts more like a child most of the film than than even Gigi so it's both I love and I hate at the same time and I kind of feel that way consistently throughout this movie yeah, uh, the the first couple times I watched this movie, Gaston did kind of get on my nerves a little bit. <laughs> so I Not think lie. I think plot wise, after this, uh, this is where he breaks up with the girlfriend, and then she, uh, every she attempts suicide, uh, which <laughs> leads me to the next thing I don't like about this movie that everyone celebrates <laughs> Gaston because he had yeah. his first suicide. So. Um, I'll leave it at that. Whoever wants to pick it up from there, but we are now celebrating suicide. John, what are your thoughts on an attempted suicide? <laughs> well, it's clearly a joke that <laughs> that is not something we can joke. relate to now. But I am, have to imagine 120 years ago, there's something we're missing here. Some some joke about yeah, we all hate on the <laughs> mentally ill. <laughs> Screw your mental health. Well, I don't know if this is about mental health because. The way that it happens is she's caught seeing another man, right? Uh, the ice skating instructor, instructor we see later on, and she had they have like a very public falling out, and so she attempts suicide, and our reaction is what? But then <laughs> they ask like, how did she do it? The same as they always do it with an insufficient amount of poison. <laughs> so she purposely poisoned herself enough to not die, but also to like go through the thing of oh no my lover caught me with another i have to go through this convention of attempting suicide even though we all know that i'm not actually going to die from this so when they're saying it's his first suicide <laughs> that's kind of what they mean like oh he got a girl to attempt suicide even though we all know she's not really attempting suicide yeah like the in the plot it says her fake attempted suicide so it's it's yeah, yeah trying to be a joke of the time to be like wow that's he's that charming I'm saying, yeah i'm not saying the joke works yeah that still does not fly <laughs> like that yeah. still is like because they're literally toasting like gaston and, and Henri are literally toasting to this idea what and mm -hmm. I don't know that like you can say, oh, it was only a little bit of poison. Oh, she was only a little bit sad and only she was only trying to you know, get a little bit of attention to her. It's still an attempted suicide. So again, like yeah. that's where I'm like, what the fuck? But to also go back to them, like finding out that she was cheating uh, on Gaston. How ridiculous is the two of them putting on like long coats and like, um, uh, well, what's the name of that hat? <laughs> you know, put, putting on hats and like goggles and like, oh, they're not going to see us now as we like obviously look through the window at her. <laughs> Again, like that's part of the story where, I, you know, if that was the only part of the story and you told me, well, you know, it was more of an attention thing and it was like a, a fake 
suicide, maybe I would be less, you know, uh, upset about it. But again, like that's compounded with every other thing we've heard before and, and every other misstep from the technical aspects before where it's just like, oh, come on. Like now, now yeah. we're dealing with this. Yeah. I mean, there's a certain give and take when it comes to like judging older art by today's moral standards. But how much but... can I give? Yeah, exactly. Like, <laughs> There's only so much one can take that I totally understand. <laughs> well, you know, if faking suicides or joking about suicide is enough, we can move on to underage drinking. Oh, yes. <laughs> the night they invented champagne, which we have Gigi trying champagne for the first time. Austin, what are your thoughts about, about that? Uh, about her <laughs> drinking champagne? <laughs> and the night they invented champagne. Yeah, the, the musical number. Uh. Well, I love how before it starts, like Gigi clearly wants to drink and her grandmother's like, no, what are you talking about? <laughs> and then when she turns her back, Gaston kind of slyly slides his glass over to her. I think it's just a very nice moment in between them. Like you can have a little sip. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that that I agree with that. I, I definitely because I've had that older family member who's like, OK, you can have like a little bit of this. Um, so I, I don't have much issues, but I'll, I do want to branch off this a little bit where it's like, uh, you know, where, where's her mother? Where, where's Gigi's mother? She There's this whole subplot that her mom sings in the opera, and you hear her singing, but you never see her. And it feels like they could have used a scene where, towards the end of the film, where she's dealing with these emotions of Gaston, that her mom finally appears and has, like, a talk with her about love and, and men and, and um, this whole idea of what she's going through. Um, so what do you think of, like, the lack of Gigi's mom just being there uh honestly i think that they could have just done completely without the mother character exactly they have it as a recurring joke that she's like a bad opera singer and they have her practicing scales and then they just shut the door (laughs) i don't think it's a funny enough joke to have it recur as many times as it does but yeah because it's certainly her grandmother that raises her and the mother never makes an on-screen appearance. Right. That it's just a strange thing that they even included. It, it just leaves me with more questions than it does, like, that I, like, oh, like, satisfied by that joke and satisfied yeah. by that subplot even being there. Yeah, you would feel like Gigi would be kind of inspired by her mother while her grandmother's saying, you know, like, she wasted her time, she should be doing what you're doing, like, you're finding the right upper-class man. She instead wasted her time and now is barely even on stage for the opera. So I thought well, there would be an yeah. element for Gigi to kind of like maybe even go out and find a career or even like mention it slightly, you know? Well, I mean, with your mentioning that, it's making me think that maybe they include her as like a cautionary tale of what happens if you don't embed yourself in this society. Mm. That you can just be cast off in a bedroom somewhere practicing for the opera <laughs> where you're in the background of the chorus that's already in the background. <laughs> Ben, what do you so like so the reason that her grandmother and her aunt are like so insistent on teaching her the ways of high society is so that because they already failed with the mother so like Gigi is like their their last chance to keep the family going was the star wars where like oh we'll take the grandson because your grandfather fucked up and went to the dark side <laughs> <laughs> is that is that what Gigi, we're... <laughs> Gigi is a template for star wars yes. is, that, is that what we're talking about right now? and then palpatine with ray he's trying to continue the tradition you know <laughs> oh <Yeah>. my god <laughs> it's all it's all you know it, it all makes sense it all now connects. Oh, now i get it now now i get it um <laughs> 
<laughs> yeah, for me, the, the night they invented champagne is is not a very memorable song. Honestly, it's it's one I kind of forget. Totally disagree. Oh, interesting. Okay. Well, is tell this me, Austin. Wait, is this a banger that Austin goes to when he goes into the car? Yeah, tell me. One hundred percent. There we yeah. go. Yeah. Wow. Song. Okay, let's hear it. Start singing. The song is fantastic. <laughs> it's so joyful. And it could also just be like taken out of context of the musical because there's no like names or situation. It's just that like we're so happy that when they thought of champagne, the the celebratory drink, they must have been thinking of times like this. This feeling that we have is most of what they had in mind for this occasion. That's a nice way of putting it. That's beautiful. I wish I felt that way, Austin. (laughs) I I wish I had Austin's interpretation every time I watch a movie (laughs) I don't love. (laughs) And and the lead up to this song is like Gaston is just passing by to say hello on his way to another public engagement that he doesn't want to go to. And then then they're like, well, why don't you stay and have dinner with us? And he's like, you know what? Yeah, I'm going to have a better time if I eat with you guys than eating with all of them. So this is the song culminating their great time. You know, like Gigi cheated at cards so that she could get invited to go on a vacation with him in Treville. And so this is him kind of realizing, I'm going to have a much better time doing that. Let's celebrate this occasion with with even her drinking champagne. She could have a glass. And this is that song that I love that. And I love that idea. And then it all. But it does make me want more. Like, why is Gaston so entrenched in their family? You know? And it feels like because they also have the subplot of Henri and Gigi's grandmother clearly having a past together. Mm-hmm. So where, like, do you wish that they had more of like why is Gaston so involved with this family, especially knowing because he had to have known the stuff about her, his uncle and her grandmother, but that doesn't yeah. seem to be relevant at all to why he's there. Yeah, I, I certainly, I mean, it would certainly help a lot. I mean, get invested just to know specifically Gaston's background with the rest of the family. Uh, we know Honoré used to have a relationship with her. They mentioned that early on. But even then, I don't know why Gaston even knows them. Right. It's a very strange thing to not include into the story. It almost feels like that if they were going to use the mother, like the mother should have been the love interest. Like that, I expected that, honestly, the first time I watched the movie. They're like, okay, we're not seeing the mom, but the mom will come out. And she'll fall in love with Gaston, and like in the movies about Gigi, not only having like this male figure that she obviously has a close relationship, but now she gets to have that forever, and like that was a missing piece in her life. Um, but it went the other way <laughs> with that. Yeah. Well, you know, there may be some explanation of how these two families know each other, and that may come from the grandmother and Henri, where they share a beautiful song together called "I Remember It Well," and this may be my favorite song specifically because I feel like it's it's a mature song and not just about people that are mature that I've seen a lot in life but it's it feels like a song that's just not simply about love it's it's looking back and remembering things fondly but it's it has that more mature look on life and I just found it really charming and these two clearly have a history together she may have been Gigi's age when Henri had a relationship with her and maybe that's kind of continued and carry on and that's how these two families know each other just trying to pass on kids to to each family and either or from both sides but Austin what did you like or did you not like about I Remember It Well? Uh, The thing that I do like about I Remember It Well is I think it adds a lot of depth to uh, Henri's character uh, because he's chasing some girl like he's always doing 
But then he hears a familiar laugh and he turns around and it's the grandmother that we know that they used to date. And he abandons the other girl and he goes towards her. And they converse talking about their past relationship. And uh, they reveal that not only did they date, but he was going to propose to her, got scared of getting married. So he cheated on her with another girl. She found out and broke everything off. So it's kind of a window into the life that he almost had. I think it would have been more dramatically fulfilling if there's a sense that he still wanted that life and is miss and misses that opportunity, but that's not really there. I think he's kind of happy with the decision that he made. He's thanking heaven for little girls. <laughs> oh, yeah. God. I I I think the staging of this musical number is really good. I love the sunset fading behind them. And now I'm going to bring up the same sentiment I brought up with every other musical number is like, they could have been dancing a little bit. There could have been like, they could have um, like with an American in Paris, they go like literally the last 17 minutes is them going through each as like almost this, the movie again and different scenes and, and settings. And it feels like they could have done that. They could have done on a bunch of sound stages, you know, them going through having like younger versions of themselves, like just miming the acts that they're singing about. And I feel like that could have added more to it. And, and so this is another musical number where I do wish there was more choreography. I, I do wish there was more. I, it looks nice and beautiful with the sun setting and how they were able to do that. Um, probably in a studio uh, space is how they uh, got it. Still, though, I, I just wish there was more to it. It, it just wasn't yeah. enough just to have. I mean, you know, with, with the singing. choreography, with the choreography in this scene, in their defense, it is a musical number between a sixty-year-old and a seventy-year-old, <laughs> right? And I'm so, not saying they have to be Gene Kelly like tap dancing all over yeah. the place, but there could have been some moving and walking around. The cane could... added a cane work, you know? Yeah, like, <laughs> John just spinning a little cane. <laughs> spinning a little cane. Yeah, so that's again like where I wish there was more, but I do like the sequencing that they had before this number with uh, Gigi and Gaston and Treville, you know, riding on the donkeys on the beach, they're playing tennis together and Gigi is going all over the place. So that's, you know, juxtaposed with the other uh, socialite woman who's just standing there playing tennis. So I, I like that and like that added a little bit of fun uh, for me into mm-hmm. the film. But then I, I still get lost in the musical aspects because I do want more. And, and, I, and just the idea keeps on coming up for me um, in all these numbers. Yeah, well, I, yeah. Sorry, I, go ahead. Austin. I totally get that. No, no. I'm just saying I I agree with him in a lot of that, yeah. especially with this number. Yeah, I really like this number, and I felt like it was one of the most relatable scenes for me in terms of just a relationship and a, a, dyna- a dynamic. And you know, my girlfriend and I will look back and remember something, but we'll completely remember it differently, or one aspect will be very different. And there's a really adorable kind of like moment they have where they're trying to like remember their first date and they're just completely yeah. on a different page, you know? Yeah. They don't remember the details, but they remember the emotions that they felt. Exactly. Which is kind of what's really worth remembering. Yeah. That's beautiful. I wish that came through more <laughs> in the movie because <laughs> that's a beautiful statement. Yeah. Yeah. So the plot of the movie uh, in terms of musical numbers, um, we kind of like lose it a little bit. So now so I guess now we can kind of talk about... Um... Well, one one thing I do want to say about I Remember It Well, because John seems to really like this song. Uh, on a musical level, this is probably my least favorite song in the film. Oh, so this <laughs> comes on the CD, you're like, skip? Or you're like, all right, I'll listen to it? Or uh, Sometimes I'll listen to it just because it flows nicely with everything else. But yeah, this one's kind of a skip. Okay. Which I love that because this is like very like plot information yeah. driven. Story. 
story-wise, exactly. like on an outline, this song works better than any other song <laughs> in the film. Exactly. But as a song, eh, like it's fine. And that comes from someone who's listening to the CD in their car too, which is such yes. a different like perspective and and undertaking. Like it, it probably feels so different just listening to song after song instead of watching the whole film. Yeah, I I bought the the CD after seeing the movie a second time, and like listening to it, I did not remember. I remember it well. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, I think that's totally fair. Um, <laughs> So, yeah, so going back, so the, the story kind of, um, the music kind of stops for a little bit, and this is where I use my crass uh, wording of the pimping of Gigi, the pimping out of Gigi, because that's essentially what this movie then does become for the next 20-ish minutes, where all it is is just uh, Gigi learning how to be a courtesan, to be in high society, her aunt constantly teaching her these things, and at, even though Gigi sort of is okay with like accepting that like that's what's happening she also gives off an a vibe of i don't want to be doing this i don't want to um be doing a number of the things like smelling cigars yeah she doesn't she doesn't understand the parisians she doesn't she doesn't understand it and what's the bird that she eats with all the bones i i was looking that <laughs> I think up. it's like ondelad yeah it, it's actually i think i actually think it's illegal to eat now yeah wow. but I think I when I was looking at it, they the traditional way of eating it is to put like a napkin over your face so you're not looking at what you're eating, which maybe you shouldn't Weird. be eating it in general. Then. <laughs> I mean, that kind of only goes to show the ridiculousness of what they're having her go through and what they're teaching her. So, OK, so you bring that up. So like for you, as you're watching the movie, are you like, what? what's your mindset at this point of the film? Are you into it because you do enjoy the music and the musical or, or are you leaning towards, well, this is just ridiculous and that's why this is fun to watch. Uh, I mean, kind of both. I do think that the music in this movie is kind of what makes it a very watchable movie. I think otherwise it's like a fine, okay movie, but if it were, it, I know that there's a film version of this that is not a musical and Outside of comparison, I have no interest in watching that because for me, the musical aspect is what sets this apart. Interesting. I and okay. I, I'm gonna do a I'm gonna do a very me thing, and in a <laughs> talk about a classic Hollywood movie, I'm gonna mention Brian Eno. <laughs> do it. Uh, he, uh, I don't. It's not an exact quote, but someone asked him about like working on other people's music and what his approach is as a music producer to other people's lyrics. And he said that as long as the lyrics don't make the song stupid, he doesn't really care. I think that's kind of what is going on here. The movie is not atrocious outside of the songs, so it's fine. Like it's like it's a workable movie. Like it makes it worth it for the songs. Okay. <laughs> yeah. I, I I don't I don't think yeah I don't think anyone's watching Gigi for the plot. I also don't think anybody like is really listening to Coldplay or Berlin era Bowie for the lyrics. You know, you're listening to it for the music, for the melodies, for the voices. Okay. I, I, I think that's fair. But then what do you say to it winning best picture? I know this is kind of like a later conversation, but best picture should represent more than just like a light fun time. Right. In your opinion. Uh, for the most part, yes. I think I think it winning has a lot to do with simply just like 
Cecil Beaton is really the MVP of this movie, designing both the costumes and the sets yeah. for this. Just a massive undertaking, and he knocked it out of the park. Uh, I think that plus the songs is what makes this such an enjoyable movie. And given the other films nominated for Best Picture, uh, I mean, I won't say the phrase yet, but I understand why this won. Okay. <laughs> I, I, the It's just like... No, not oh, not to always be like the opposite of what you guys are saying, but it's it is like the, like why like the the reason for us even talking about all these movies is for the story, for the technical stuff, and to only like you know put like a you know a tip of the cap because of the production design just isn't enough. Like there's so many great movies that look good, but plot wise don't really work, and and that's where like when talking about this movie and trying to fit it in this you know. Um, you know this group of best picture winners it feels so uh, such an outlier because it doesn't give that much of a shit about the plot because it's just well here's an okay visual with music that everyone was into it may not be the best music but everyone's into it and that's why it won it feels just like a populist kind of pick rather than the smart well because it feels like especially nowadays like the best picture winner does try to be a little more um smart about it and um Maybe green, green, it, it memory, like forth. green, like Green Book is not the best example of that. Cause that's like a more recent winner, but most of the other Best Picture winners do follow I, that. I mean, Coda, I would put in a similar category where I don't think, from a filmmaking standpoint, it's that great a film, but it's a but it's a very good film and a very enjoyable film. Well, I think like was it the yeah. Well, I think like, and that's actually a really good example because I agree. Like, it's not it's not Lord of the Rings. It's not like even Parasite where Parasite does so many great technical stuff, but it, it has a really heartwarming and emotional story um, to it. But, and at the same time to compare it like to this film with like what Gigi's trying to do with the cinemascope aspect, like Coda knows, well, this isn't going to be a cinematographer's film. This is going to be a story driven plot. It's going to be the acting that drives it. Yeah. Whereas Gigi, it's a movie. About, it's a movie about, that's like we have a good script and we have a good cast this is a movie that's like we know that we can look pretty and we have great songs right and we know like everyone's gonna go see this movie and 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 that and again that goes for the whole populist idea which yeah wait wait uh, wait the oscars voted for a populist film (laughs) (laughs) well i've said this hang on hang on i've said this in the past that actually big box office movies did used to win these awards yeah which uh, I think that pro- I think that was like the '80s is probably where that changed a little bit. Um, but regardless, um, jumping back into yeah, the to, music, yeah, I, I, th- yeah these <laughs> are the tangents I love. And <laughs> let's talk about the titular song "Gigi," sung by Luis Jordan. You know, we have him kind of like contemplating. He's annoyed. He's angry. He's calling Gigi so many different names, a baby, and of course, rhyming every single one. To me, this is like the most frustrating song. It may be even worse than Thank Heaven for Little Girls for me, honestly, because he's talking about such a young girl and he's so frustrated and he's so will they, won't they back and forth that it's I'm just so over it, I think, by this point in the film. So hearing him talk about her being a child while we clearly know he's attracted to her and wants her, it's frustrating. Well, I don't think he realizes that he's attracted to her or he wants her until this scene. Yeah, he's fighting it in this scene is kind of what it is, right? Yeah, well, I mean, everyone else is kind of like grooming Gigi to like 
fill this role. And he doesn't see any of that. He's just like, oh, she's just like fun kid that I have a great time with. Yeah. But he realized in that moment, like she's growing up. I think I have feelings for her. Which we've all may have been in that scenario. Uh, younger girl? Wait a minute. Oh, not younger girl, <laughs> but all been in the scenario where you have a friend, you know someone, and maybe once you hang out with them, once you know them more, maybe your feelings just change over time. Well, John, that's too. why Austin is here, so he can witness. I've been trying to <laughs> secretly hold this off, but to you, I feel it's you got to get it's on one knee, Ben, before you ask that. <laughs> but I think it's real. I would get on one knee, but I have a standing desk. So <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I get that. It sounds like you like this song definitely more than both of us, Austin. Uh, yeah, I don't think it's one of the best songs in the film. I do think it has a great melody, and I'm not totally sh- sure why this was the song they chose to nominate mm-hmm. from it. But I, I still think that it works. It's him. It's the realization of his feelings. Yeah, so why don't... Uh, let me ask this question now and then we can answer it when we do get to the best song talk in the Oscar part of this podcast is what song would you have picked? So think about that um, and we can get All back right. to that later when we do talk about the Academy Awards. So going to the next number, um, another Henri number. I'm glad I'm not young anymore. You know, it kind of wraps up his character, right? So it's it's a nice little charming thing to see he's seeing the frustrations that Gigi and Gaston are going through I think it's necessary you know you need to have him kind of give one last outing like you said Austin I wish it kind of tied back into the grandmother maybe they become a couple maybe he kind of even hints to the fact that they could be a couple or he could settle down but it doesn't fit his character I guess yeah I think this is kind of him realizing that he made the right decision of being a bachelor because he sees all like the stress that everyone else is going on and he's like I'm glad I don't have to deal with that. Like, it's not my worry. (laughs) I'm glad I'm not young enough where that's still a worry for me. How do you feel about that, Ben? Uh, (laughs) It's fine. It's, I don't know. It's not really a number where I'm like, Henri, you are kind of disgusting. But (laughs) it's like a fine number. And I think it's also just a a part of the story where, because this, I don't know, in terms of like runtime left, there's probably got to be like 20-ish minutes left of the movie. So at this point, I've already been subjected to all the other things that I didn't like. <laughs> so it's really hard to just to then be like, oh, well, this is fine. Like, this is good because I'm already disgusted by most of the other things. Yeah. If you're not into the rest of the movie, this is a song I can imagine where you're just like, get on with it. <laughs> yeah. Please end. Yeah. yeah. Pl- please figure this plot out. Um, and then um, we get to say a prayer uh, for me tonight. But. Like and that's a good number, but at still at the same time, like I, what happens between Gigi and Gaston, pretty much right after the song is sung, is like, what the fuck is going on? Yeah, like, like yeah. Plot wise, it's it's like Gaston like make a decision or say something, but you, without like the filmmakers are like, but well, we're not gonna have him say anything. He's just gonna react. Yeah, this is like her preparing for the night, getting ready, and I think some people this is like kind of very different for some people whether they see it as her being scared for the night just nervous and some people have even gone to the the lengths of calling this her being like prepared to be uh to losing her virginity prepared to be raped essentially tonight which is i mean very intense language to use i i I think that's pushing it. yeah it is it's definitely pushing it but you know people have very harsh feelings about this film whether one side uh or the other but yeah austin tell me what you think uh well 
Uh, if I remember correctly, uh, right before this scene, uh, Gaston is ready to make Gigi his mistress. Like he's like, she'll have like a house, she'll have a car, she'll have all these nice things, but the key is that they won't be married. She is his mistress. Uh, and I'm trying to remember the plot now. It's been a few weeks since I have seen the film. Yeah, that's pretty much like yeah. it is what happens. It's like, yeah, she'll have all this, and but there's but he doesn't make that. Uh, but I'll marry her type of thing because I feel like he's not even thinking about it that way. I think yeah. maybe he's like, well, I'll take her out for a test run, and then I'll let you know what I think about her after. It, is the test run before? Is the test run before or after? Uh, she says that she says has the speech about not wanting to like just be tossed aside when she's too old for him. That that was before because um because when she says all that, he kind of has that. He's like, oh okay, like she can make this decision on her own. That it's not just like a, a business deal between me and her grandma and her aunt like th- like she's actually making this decision for herself which is like it puts a lot of agency in Gigi's character and, and that's good but at the same time you know I, to point out like how many other 16 year old girls are like oh my god I would totally go marry or or go date X you know musician you know pop star well, it's not just well, I mean, that's kind of the thing is that Gaston's like a famous bachelor. Right. He's in all the tabloids. He's a successful businessman. And she knows him personally to be a fun person that she enjoys spending time with. He's so good that he gets people to fake their suicide. Like he's that that yeah. infamous. And then he's so famous that that even gets written in the paper and talked about all around Paris as well. By the way, how great are those drawings that they have? <laughs> oh, for the parties, like that—that's really yeah. good, and that—and that goes back to I. It feels like an American, American Paris, Paris again, yeah. where I—I I like those aspects, and I, and I like how the story is told through those, through the newspapers, through the invi- these like extravagant instru- ex- invitations and posters for these dances and parties and whatnot, and that's all fine and good, but again, like, it's completely overshadowed by the plot. And the other, you know, aspects of this movie. So it's, I like, I I know, like, I want to appreciate it, but I also it's hard to appreciate that stuff. Uh, a subtle thing they do that maybe will help you appreciate that is, uh, they have. I mean, we've seen Gigi wear wearing gloves before, and we have her gloves turning the pages of it. And then at the end of that sequence, we see that Gigi is the one that is reading. So we know that she is aware of, and possibly even interested in all his dating exploits. So she's certainly aware of the lifestyle and is interested enough that she continues to read about it. So using that word interested, so is it interest in just Gaston as a friend or is it interest as a romantic? Because I don't think that that's, I would lean more towards the former that, oh, well, it's just Gaston. I just want to know what's going on rather than, oh my God, I'm in love with him. And I hate every girl that talks to him. Uh, I don't know if I'd say, and I hate every girl that talks to him. Well, maybe because she does kind of hate every girl yeah. that does talk to him. But yeah, I mean, maybe they could have included another song similar to Gigi for her called Gaston. But... <laughs> and uh, I mean, this whole movie, I think, could have just been retitled Gaston versus Gigi just because of the way of the perspective and who is mostly taking up the screen time of this yeah let's talk about that because we can wrap up the plot here with 
We have Gigi and Gaston going on a date. I think it's back to Maxim's and yeah, back to Maxim's. Maxim's, yeah, the same restaurant, and we're getting everyone with their eyes on them. You know, everyone's watching them. Uh, he seems very annoyed while she's trying to do everything perfect and be the perfect uh, partner for him. Uh, Austin, what? How do you feel about this scene with him kind of feeling anxious while they're on a date? How do you feel about it? And gifts her a really nice bracelet too. Yes, of course, that's important. He gives her a gorgeous bracelet, which she's very thankful for. <laughs> uh, but then uh, we see her going through all the things that she's been taught throughout the movie. And just like in the prior scene in Max and in Maxine's, where the other woman went through all these same things, he's not having a great time. And we even hear that she's not thinking of me music in the background. Like that is the score playing underneath the scene. Mm. And part of the reason why he freaks out and like yanks her out of the restaurant and throws her into an apartment is because she's like, he's like, this is not the woman that I thought you were. I liked you for all the, for all the exact opposite reasons. And me bringing you into this world as a mistress is making you into someone I don't want to be. So is it someone that he wants to be with romantically or just that I don't like this version of Gigi I just wanted the fun time my friend type of Gigi uh, I think that I mean because he knows that she's been given lessons and when he returns to the apartment he's like is this what you've been teaching her so it's not like oh I only want the fun Gigi it's he knows that this is not the authentic her and if he like keeps going with her as his mistress that is you know that's that not is, what he wants yeah well it's interesting because we see him drop her off and there's that conflict and she's so upset she's crying in fact i think i even looked away the first time i was watching it where it was yeah. so such... she, she's crying because she's like i did everything right yeah why are you mad exactly yeah. and well, she even says like what like what did i do yeah over and over what did i do what did i do and it's such a dr- like dramatic cut like where it goes from them being happy yeah. or you think it is to her crying and being pulled away and we have the moment of Gaston kind of like walking around Paris thinking about and it obviously again felt very similar to an American in Paris where we have kind of like the final scene not obviously a ballet and, but and these are like really good shots too I, I gotta give a lot of credit it is like, some of my yeah. favorite cinematography the, the, all, yeah. all the silhouettes they have yeah, yeah. It, it's so beautiful that you're like where was this earlier yeah. and it, it does, it's a really good job and I, and I there's not, there's no singing at all. It's just the music and him thinking, but it gets that message across, I think, because of the visuals of it. Uh, yeah, and uh, a note on the visuals that they go all to the same locations that they went to during the Gigi number. Yeah, and like the scene is him in complete silhouette, like walking away from the apartment. Every now and then he'll turn around and then be like, no, and then turn around mm-hmm. and go and. He's going deeper and deeper into like Paris and into Parisian society, and he keeps second guessing. Like, maybe I don't want to go deeper until finally, he turns around and is like, "No, like this is not the way I should be going. I want to go back to Gigi." It's interesting, yeah, because I think from watching it for me, it's like, oh, we've already had inner monologue from Gaston. Like, let's let's yeah. use some of that. Like, even give him a singing number. Like, I want more as a viewer, and but I completely understand what you're saying. It, it is I actually think the visual storytelling here does all of that with him just like going forward and turning around. Yeah, I, I think I, it and, definitely does. Yeah. Yeah. And this might also sound a little mean, but I don't know if Louis Jordan is a good enough actor to fully show that. <laughs> well, he definitely can't sing. 
or at least he can do spoken word well. Yeah. Um, so the movie goes from his realization to he goes back, says he's going to marry her, and then that. Well, it's not. Well, that's. I think the key thing is that he's not just going to put her aside as his mistress. He's like, no, like I want her as my wife. She's right. like the main thing. Because one of Gigi's concerns before was like, all right, like we'll have fun for 15 years and then you'll cast me aside for just like another young woman. And she didn't want that. Now he's saying, no, I want you and I want you forever. But couldn't that also be like divorce is still a thing? Do you, like, I think like that. <laughs> I mean, yes. But when you <laughs> you're not saying we might get divorced. <laughs> yeah. Even you- though you're 16, it will work out <laughs> like that's I don't know. That's just where the cynic in me is like, uh, are you sure about that? Like, are you sh- really sure? Like that, like that is what you want, and like that's what's gonna work out. And mm-hmm. in a world, it probably does. And I wonder, Austin, do you think if this film was less subtle in, in that way, where they show him thinking about it, they don't have like Gigi like express these notions as much if it was more blatant and obvious do you think people would hate on this film as much if it is more clear that she gets what she actually wants at the end she wants to marry someone she wants someone to love her for who she is and that's actually what's happening but a lot of people don't see it that way yeah i think that if they make it less subtle it will make people like the film more but it would make it a worse film which is really interesting because i feel that same way uh what i will say though is that uh, Gigi does have a great line I like, although I think this is actually beforehand, before they go to dinner. I'd rather be miserable with you than without you. Yes, yes. That's a great line. Yeah, I do that love is a good that. line. Yeah, I love that line. This movie does have moments where it, you see that shining light. You're like, oh my god, great, and then it, it falls back. To, like That's a really great line, yeah. and then um, they're just, again, the other parts. There's also, and we're talking about just like one, like lines, one of the only lines that I wrote down that I thought it was really funny was uh, and Alicia saying English I suppose we must fe- I suppose we yeah. must they refuse to learn French and it's like but you're saying that in English too like why well, they're <laughs> saying it in English because it's an American but like why can't you like take the why can't you say you, did something? you know that in Schindler's List they weren't speaking English I know like, that I thing? know that but sometimes <laughs> it's like just say some fucking French and even in Schindler's List there's some German that got said <laughs> I mean, the German was spoken by the Nazis, and everyone else is speaking English. Yes, that, there's a whole, uh, there's a lot we get to say about Schindler's List. Uh, a lot of good things. <laughs> uh, Why have we brought Schindler's List into the Gigi? We, we've got <laughs> Star Wars, Schindler's List. We've got Main <laughs> Manhattan. I, let's name it all. <laughs> Psycho. We talked about. <laughs> I think we talked a lot about Gigi. I think we really summarized the plot well. Got through all the musical numbers. Austin, before we move to the 31st Academy Awards. We'll definitely talk more about Gigi as we hit the wins and the nominees, but anything else, any final thoughts about Gigi? Uh, yeah, I mean, uh, just a couple things on the art direction. Uh, one of the biggest inspirations was the French artist Sem, spelled S-E-M, no, Latin, no first name, just Sem. <laughs> and uh, his drawings were actually in the opening title sequences, and that was the look they wanted to go for. That's like the idealized version of classic Paris or Paris before the war. I think they did. And I do think that they kind of succeeded in doing that. Yeah, I feel the same way. I think it represented the paintings that they showed really well. And I, I love the long strip where they kind of introduce and, and end the film in. I think it's so Paris and Parisian. I love it. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I think uh, there's no better time than just to jump right into the 31st Academy Awards. Thank you. Thank you very much. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to Chance of a Lifetime. Yes, sir, round and round she goes, and where she stops, only Price and Waterhouse knows. I want to tell you, I hope you all saved your ticket stubs because we're awarding the Oscars by number tonight. That's not true, but didn't feel good for a minute, huh? I want to say this is the big night of the year for Hollywood. All eyes of the world are focused on this stage. For some, there will be glory and applause. For others, heartbreak and tears. But enough about me. I'm used to it. I'm getting to be known as the Pagliacci of the teleprompter. And I don't care about an Oscar, really. I'd rather have friends. Now, for the first time, I have a good excuse for not being nominated this year. I haven't been well. And I'm getting sicker every minute. I'm here tonight against my doctor's orders. He wanted my tickets. Now, I wanted to do this show, but they want me to take things easy, so I've already lined up a job as wardrobe man on a Bridget Bardot picture. (laughs) The pay isn't much, but the fringe benefits are terrific. (laughs) Incidentally, this Academy Awards show tonight has the largest viewing audience in history. Doesn't it give you a wonderful, warm feeling to know that all over America, millions of people are sitting in front of their television sets and saying, what happened to Tales of Wells Fargo? I do want to announce that the awards may be held up for a few minutes as a little trouble backstage. Price caught Waterhouse with an eraser. <laughs> but ladies and gentlemen, we have a great show tonight. To give you an idea, Ed Sullivan is in our audience. <laughs> and it's a glamorous group. The cloakroom is crowded with mink and chinchilla and sables. They have an armed guard just to keep them from mating. But this is a great night, and Hollywood has had a great year. Some of the pictures were grim, but what realism. In fact, I'm surprised to see Susan Hayward here tonight. (laughs) Now, they've seated all the nominees on the aisle this year so they can get to the stage quickly, but Hollywood has become jaded after so many years of Academy Awards. They're all just sitting there calmly in their mink stoles, black tie, and trash track shoes. They look wonderful. And you can feel the tension in the air. This makes Cape Canaveral look like a rest home. (laughs) Yes, this is the only show in the world where the best acting is done by the losers. (laughs) The program tonight will have five, five master's ceremonies, five MCs. What a waste. (laughs) What will I be left to say after I steal their idiot cards? (laughs) Now, I was selected to open the show, and I'm going to be followed by David Niven. That is, if the balloon's on time. And um, (laughs) after that, we'll have some amusing remarks by Mort Saul, the favorite comedian of nuclear physicists everywhere. (laughs) Mort's backstage putting pearl studs in his sweater right now. (laughs) And incidentally, there's so many Englishmen on the show this year, backstage looks like the fallout from the Late Late Show. 
I put a dime in the Coke machine back there and a tea bag came out. <laughs> we have Sir Lawrence Olivier, David Niven, Peter Ustinov, Sir Alec Guinness. Sir Alec Guinness. Imagine knighting a comedian. <laughs> How civilized can you get? The closest I ever came to being knighted over here was one day when Ike tapped me with a putter. He said, that's my ball. <laughs> Sir Lawrence should feel right at home here tonight because after the show, the losers gather in the parking lot and do the last scene from Hamlet. <laughs> we have some wonderful new talent in the show and Hollywood's always encouraged new talent. And this year we have such new faces as Russ Tamlin, Dean Jones, Ricky Nelson, Maurice Chevalier. <laughs> Isn't that Chevalier great? He's been smiling for 70 years. Of course, you'd smile too if you put champagne on your Wheaties. <laughs> I said you'd smile too if you put champagne on your Wheaties. <laughs> That's all right. It's okay. The 31st Academy Awards were held on April 6th, 1959 at the RKO Pantages Theater in Hollywood, Los Angeles. The ceremony continued the new tradition by using an ensemble cast of actors that included Jerry Lewis, Mort Saul, Tony Randall, Tony Randall, Bob Hope, David Niven, and Lawrence Olivier. The first award of the evening was the Irving G. Thalberg Memorial Award, and that one went to Jack L. Warner. And the Academy Honorary Award goes to Maurice Chevalier for his contributions to the world of entertainment for more than half a century. Yeah, uh, Maurice Chevalier is an interesting figure. Uh, he started out as like the toast of Paris. And then uh, when sound came in to films, they were like, hey, we should get this guy from musicals. Uh, they paired him up with Ernst Lubitsch. They made The Love Parade, which is one of my favorite uh, early sound musicals. It is one of the horniest movies ever made. <laughs> and I highly, highly recommend checking it out. Yeah, yeah. I'm going to add it I just because you said yeah. that. <laughs> I, I showed clips of it to one of my roommates who hates musicals and hates everything in black and white. And he was laughing really hard at some of the jokes. And he's like, this is actually really good. The Love Parade <laughs> from 1929. Highly recommend it. All right. That's good to know. Uh, and I think the other thing to note about Chevalier is um, what happened with him during World War II. And yeah, I think uh, I think it's really important to bring up. Um, so he was in France at the time. The Nazis took over. He was performing in France. Um, and he actually, I think I read this correctly, he was married to a Jewish woman. And so they were able to kind of get to the safer. All the more reason to like him. Right. And so you get to like the safer parts of Paris. and But he was also forced to perform for the Germans. And so a lot of people branded him as a Nazi sympathizer, which... I don't like as much as I hate his character as Henri. I it does definitely doesn't seem like to me that he was a Nazi sympathizer. That he was just caught up in what was going on and was forced into it. So that so that added a lot to why there was such a delay of him even coming back to the movies. So like that's why Gigi is such a big thing for him in his career because he's back in the American eyes and to come back and get an honorary award like this is pretty good and it's great yeah. for him and his story. You'll see a big drought if you go on like his IMDb page, and it was because like no one wanted to work with him because he had such a big stink with that he performed for Nazis, even though he was kind of forced into doing so. 
And moving on to best special effects, this one went to Tom Howard for Tom Thumb. This is Howard's second and final Career Academy Award. He previously won for Blythe Spirit at the 19th Academy Awards. And Tom Thumb is about a boy, no bigger than a thumb, who manages to outwit two thieves determined to make a fortune by selling him. Best film editing goes to Adrian Fazan for Gigi. This is Fazan's first and only Academy Academy Award after previously being nominated for An American in Paris in 1951. Other notable films that she worked on were Anchors Away from 1954 and Singing in the Rain in 1952. So, we have Best Film Editing. We honestly didn't talk too much about the editing. Uh, does it stand out for you guys? We have uh, other big films like I Want to Live and The Defiant Ones that kind of show up throughout this award show. How do you guys feel about the editing of Gigi? We'll start with you, Austin. Uh, I don't really notice it, which I guess is a compliment. But because many of the takes are so long, there's not even a ton for them to do with editing. Uh, I mean, a movie like I Want to Live, there is a lot of creative, flashy editing choices. So I certainly understand that nomination. But I think it, the editing in Gigi kind of fills its purpose. I don't know if it's Oscar worthy, but certainly not bad editing. Yeah, that's kind of how I feel. I don't feel yeah. like there's anything wrong with the editing. Um, it does its part. Uh, it does it somewhat well. Uh, and I think that's it. And I, I, we've mentioned it before, but there were so many long takes. So I think like that is what adds to, like that's the pizzazz of this movie is that, oh, there are a lot of long takes. So the editing is very simple and just on beat. Uh, but moving on to best cinematography color. This one goes to Joseph Ruttenberg for Gigi. So this is Ruttenberg's fourth and final Career Academy Award. He previously won for The Great Waltz, Mrs. Miniver, and Somebody Up There Likes Me. The four total Academy Awards in the Best Cinematography Award uh, in the Best Cinematography category is tied for the most ever with Leon Shamroy, who accomplished this feat in 1942. So we we've talked about it. I gave my opinion on the cinemascope aspect of this movie. Um, I don't, for me, this movie, I, it still feels like it doesn't do enough. And it's funny that another movie that he won for Mrs. Miniver, which is a movie we've talked about where there wasn't enough cinematography to really give it that. Um, but I, I guess I do also understand like why this would win for that year. Um, so I'm going to throw it to you guys, what you guys think about, uh, Ruttenberg's win here. Uh, I think this is one of those cinematography wins where it's just a very pretty film. Uh, I would say similarly for fellow nominee Anti Name, uh, Cat on a Hot Tin Roof. I don't remember any particular like wow cinematography in that, and I haven't seen South Pacific or The Old Man in the Sea. But I mean, when you think of Gigi, you think of the look of the film. Like it's just gorgeous to look at. Yeah, I think you're not wrong in that sense. I think South Pacific, yeah, it's another musical. I would love to hear your thoughts whenever you get to watch that. And we've mentioned James Wong Howe for The Old Man and The Sea, or we've mentioned him in general as a very significant cinematographer. So I would love to go out of my way and watch The Old Man and The Sea. But yeah, it, it, it is there. It's not it's not too flashy in terms of what you expect from a musical in terms of camera movements. But with everything that's on screen... It's it's pretty phenomenal, and I think they do some some creative choices when it comes to kind of showing our musical numbers. Since they're not all about dancing, we kind of focus on characters and try to kind of go internal more. So I really appreciate it. 
moving now before we move before yeah, sure. we move on uh should we talk about movies that maybe should have been nominated or do hey you if do you got later? one awesome yeah bring it let's hear it uh for best cinematography i mean there are several other movies that came out in 1958 that i think look better than Gigi does at least on a cinematography standpoint uh i mean most obviously is touch of evil uh which i know was like chopped up among its original release uh, actually, I'm not even going to count Touch of Evil because that would be in the black and white category. Yeah, I was, I'll get at, I was gonna, that in a second. <laughs> I was going to ask about that. Any- so instead, I'll say The Big Country, which is a fantastic Western epic from William Wyler. Uh, outside of Best Years of Our Lives, that's probably my favorite film from him. It's an absolutely gorgeous film. It does very interesting things with cinematography. There's like this very ethereal sunrise fist fight between Gregory Peck and Charlton Heston that like the entire fight scene, I'm just like, this looks so incredible and is so perfect for this moment. I'm, I'm not surprised that Gigi won, but I am surprised that the big country was not nominated here. Well, maybe they were in the politics of Academy Awards for like, Oh, well, Ben Hur is on the horizon. And, uh, we know that should be, you know, that had to have been people's minds too. Cause everyone had like knew about that production going on. That was such a big, thing um so yeah i like to sometimes so, think that the voters were like oh well maybe maybe we'll give it next year to uh to weiler yeah when, when people talk about biggest snubs and i'll bring up something like this they're just like shut up no, <laughs> no, no one knows what you're talking no about. i love it that i i love those specifics and those uh those snubs yeah it's, it's the reason why we're having you on today because i it's the reason why we even do this podcast yeah we, i've never seen the big country i, I totally want to watch it now it's added to my list Moving on to Best Cinematography, Black and White, we have the winner here is Sam Levitt for The Defiant Ones. This is Levitt's first and only career win out of three total nominations. And we won't go into the story or the plot too much about The Defiant Ones. I know Austin and I have both seen it. In terms of cinematography, Austin, how do you feel about The Defiant Ones? Uh, I think it's very well shot. Uh, they do a lot of night scenes and they're all extremely well lit yeah. but not in like a you can tell that it's day for night kind of way mm-hmm. not overexposed it's kind of the perfect amount uh, I know a lot of movies today or TV shows when it's a night scene it's just very dim and you kind of if you're watching your computer you kind of have to turn the brightness all the way up uh, but that is not the case uh, with uh, the Defiant Ones it just kind of looks how it's supposed to look yeah, I thought it was beautiful, and I thought it had like a great pace to it in terms of even the way certain scenes were shot. You know, sometimes it would be kind of faster edited. You have a, like a fist fight between the two men, or sometimes we just have a slow talking scene between the two, and it's just a slow push in as their two are talking and you kind of learn more about these characters. But yeah, I thought it was yeah. absolutely stunning, and, and seeing the most recent uh, remaster of the film is it's beautiful. That being said... There are two black and white films that I would want to bring up that I think actually have even better cinematography. Uh, the first one is Touch of Evil, uh, Orson Welles' film of the of this year, which I know is regarded as a classic now, but upon its release, it was very heavily cut uh, to a much shorter version. Uh, Orson Welles famously wrote like a 20-page memo saying all the terrible choices that they made. <laughs> Uh, but that was the release version. I think that's part of why it didn't get nominations. But even still, Russell Meddy shot a an absolutely beautiful film 
which I mean, cinematography wise, just talk about that opening three minute shot is cinematography wise, one of the most influential films you could have. Uh, the other one, and I don't know if this would count because for release dates with foreign films and the Oscars are often, you know, it's very circumstantial, but uh, a Polish film from uh, director Andrzej Wajda, Ashes and Diamonds, one of the most beautiful movies I've ever seen. Beautiful shot uh, by Jerry, I hope I'm pronouncing this right, Wojcik. Uh, it, like, just go on Google Images and type in Ashes and Diamonds 1958. You'll be blown away. Why does that name sound so familiar? Andrzej Wajda or Jerry Wojcik? No, Ashes and Diamonds. What? Uh, I mean, it's one of the more famous Polish films. Uh, on the on their 2012 uh, sight and sound list, where uh, critics and directors like are listing their all time favorite films, uh, Francis Ford Coppola and Martin Scorsese put this in their top ten. Okay, so Bill Hader has cited it as a huge influence. So it's a very influential, very well regarded film. I I think I heard Bill Hader say it. That that's where. So, all right. Well, that's going on the list because I, yeah, I've definitely heard of that movie before. But uh, I'm glad you brought that up. Um, but let's. Uh, I think it's actually streaming on HBO Max. Oh, really? Yeah. All right. I guess I know what me and John are doing after this uh, movie. I don't know if it will be by the time this podcast airs. <laughs> so um, you can always rent or get Criterion Channel. Yes. This podcast is brought to you. By God, Criterion I wish oh, <laughs> that would be amazing. Please. Um, moving on though, to best costume design, this one goes to Gigi for Cecil Beaton. So it's Beaton's first of three Career Academy Awards, and he would go on to win for My Fair Lady uh, for both costume design and best art direction. Um, and I think I, what the writers of Gigi also did My Fair Lady, if I'm not yeah. mistaken. Um, and, yes, and that, that's well. another musical. We'll get to it that I'm not totally in love with, um, but we will get to that in less than 10 years 10 episodes <laughs> uh, i mean they are very similar yes. films to the point where when it was in production people used to refer to it as eliza in paris like <laughs> using eliza doolittle as the main character of, of my fair lady but uh i mean i think this is a very obvious win definitely some of the best costumes in any movie yeah they're gorgeous oh my god every single one every single dress and we hadn't really talked about Gigi's iconic famous dress I don't don't even know what to call it a swan like dress with the black feathers coming off the shoulder it's stunning it's one of the best moments in the film I think and not that but just every single dress in the background and there is so many it is such like a mammoth job to pull off yeah and it's like and every single costume is exquisite yeah and one bad costume or one just not period costume could completely throw you out of the film and it doesn't happen once yeah yeah uh what i do want to mention uh some came running is nominated in this category some came running came out the same year uh, i mean obviously and but it was directed also by vincent minnelli he actually directed three films this year including the reluctant debutante so on top of a Best Picture winning film, he also made two other films. And at least nowadays, Some Came Running is often regarded as his best non-musical film. Yeah, I always find it incredible when you hear about uh, directors doing multiple films within a year, artists recording multiple albums within a year. Yeah. Um, it's something that we don't get a lot of today. So it, it, yeah. I certainly I appreciate mean, it. Yeah, Soderbergh is really the only one that I think still does that, where it's just one after the other after the other. 
And uh, one more thing I'd like to say about Some Came Running. Uh, Richard Linklater calls it his favorite film. Ooh, wow. I love Linklater, so I got to check that out. Alrighty, moving on with Best Art Direction. Goes to Gigi, Art Direction by William A. Horning and E. Preston Ames. Set Direction by Henry Grace and F. Co. Gleason. This is Horning's first of two career wins, including Ben-Hur in 1959. Horning, however, died before ever receiving the physical award. A week before his death, he did receive the news of being nominated for Gigi. To date, Horning is the only person ever to win two posthumous Academy Awards in consecutive ceremonies, and some other notable films Horning worked on were The Wizard of Oz in 1939 and North by Northwest in 1959. So here again, we have another award for Gigi, and that is art direction. We talked a little bit about the art direction and how much they kind of packed everything in the frame. Austin, what do you think about the art uh, direction? I mean, yeah. Easy win. The only the only thing that I would maybe put over it is Vertigo, but that's mainly for like the crazy dream hallucination sequence that they have. Yeah, sure. But, I mean, again, it's just a stunning movie to look at. And... Uh, actually, uh, I didn't bring this up earlier, but uh, they actually filmed a lot of this on location in Paris, which was especially difficult because, uh, at least at the time, Paris is not in America. So they had to bring over everyone. Uh, but yeah, and for Gaston's bedroom, which we see a couple times, they actually had to shoot that in a museum. Really? Of how exquisite they wanted to have it look. So they had to be very careful with everything because they're shooting in an actual museum. That's pretty cool. All right. I like that behind the scenes. Fact. <laughs> um, uh, moving on though to best sound. This one goes to Fred Hines for South Pacific. This is Hines' second of five total Academy Awards. He would go on to receive Academy Awards for the best picture winners, West Side Story and The Sound of Music. And Hines, he has five Oscars in the best sound category, which is tied for the most ever with Thomas T. Moulton and Douglas Shear. Best song goes to Gigi from Gigi. Music by Frederick Lowe, lyrics by Alan J. Lerner. Gigi, am I a fool without a mind? Or have I merely been too blind to realize? Oh, Gigi. Why, you've been growing up before my eyes. Gigi, you're not at all that funny, awkward little girl I knew. Oh, no, overnight there's been a breathless change in you. So I had asked Austin uh, a little bit before in the podcast of what song he would have proposed as the song to be nominated. So Austin, what song would you have picked uh, for Gigi to get the best song award? Uh, I will say my answer to that is different from what is the best song in the film. Because okay. I do think that the best song in the film is uh, The Night They Invented Champagne. Uh, probably followed by Thank Heaven for Little Girls and The Parisians. And then, you know, I'm going to throw say, say a prayer for me tonight. It's just such a beautiful little vignette of a song. Yeah, I but, I thought that yeah. would have been nominated when watching the movie. I thought that would have been the song. 
Yeah, that song was actually originally written for My Fair Lady, but they wound up cutting it from that and recycled it here. So maybe that's why they didn't nominate that. Because the thing with Gigi is that it's one of the longer songs, and it's really like kind of like a if you were to have a 45 record of a song from this movie, that would kind of be the one. Because the rest of the songs are all around the two-minute mark. Plus, like on a sheet music level, I feel like if you were to cover any song, this would kind of be the one for it, just like on an instrumental level. Because if you have a song, you know, I really love The Night They Invented Champagne, but it's not even two minutes long. So I don't know if that would work. If you're trying to win an award, Gigi is probably your best bet. Interesting. Okay. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, it's it's a really tough one. I don't think Gigi's my favorite, but to really pick one... Well, I think Austin brings up an interesting point of like what, like what's required for it. Like what, like how long does it have to be? Um, and I, I'd have to look at like all the best song winners, but I think like the theme from High Noon. I don't think that's a very long song. I think the runtime had to maybe two and a half minutes, if that, at the most. Um, so I, I think that's an interesting point to bring up. Like, how much does length matter to the songs that get nominated? whether it's used entirely or not within the movie. And then there's also like how relevant is it, it is to the film, right? right? And with Gigi being the titular song, maybe they're like, yeah, we'll, we'll go with it. It's getting all these other awards. We've heard that name so much. Uh, best scoring of a musical picture goes to Gigi to Andre Previn. Uh, this is Previn's first of four Academy Awards. Some of his wins would include Porgy and Bess and My Fair Lady. Uh, so with respect to the other films in this category, which I have not seen and I'm sure are great, there's no chance they had of winning. <laughs> I mean, goddamn. Goddamn. Uh, I do think it's weird that uh, only Andre Previn got nominated and not Frederick Lowe, who wrote the basis for much of the music. But even still, uh, he arranged nearly everything uh, with some help by Conrad Salinger on a couple moments, but Jesus Christ, this is gorgeous to listen to. I mean, John, where does it rank for you then? <laughs> because I, in terms of best picture winners that are musicals, this one doesn't. This one rates lowest for me. And we've had, and there are some really great musicals, and there are some in between that aren't so good. But this one, yeah, I don't even consider Broadway melody musical. Uh, yeah, so. no, I'm not talking about that. I'm talking <laughs> like you know, West Side, Sound of Music, sure. My Fair Lady, um, Chicago. Uh, well, I haven't seen Chicago or My Fair Lady, so it's oh, kind okay. of it's kind of hard to, to really say so. I, I know Alfred Newman, we've seen him pop up many times before, and South Pacific, I think I've seen high school productions of, and I know it's kind of continued on, and people are still adapting it today, so I would imagine that's the biggest up-and-coming, but in terms of what we've seen so far, this is probably my least favorite but we haven't seen many it's been only really one other yeah. really to compare it with so yeah i'm excited to compare it to my fair lady i will say with this winning best score there are only two scores really that i listen to outside of the context of the film this is one of them i mean obviously i have the cd and there's another one that i will mention later on Ooh, okay held us in suspense <laughs> Best scoring of a dramatic or comedy picture goes to Dimitri Tiomkin for The Old Man and the Sea. This is Tiomkin's fourth and final Academy Award. His previous wins include best score for The High, for The High and Mighty, High Noon, as well as best original song for Do Not Forsake Me, Oh My Darling from High Noon 
from 1952. Uh, when I said earlier that uh, <laughs> there is a second score that I listen to outside of the film, not this film. You got to keep waiting. Oh, oh, what a tease. All right. Well, let's. But, well, what I will say about this category is that I mentioned how much I love the big country. I do not like Jerome Morris's score for the big country. Ooh. That's one of the few things about the movie that I dislike, yet it's still got one of the i think the only two nominations that film got interesting well moving on to best short subject cartoons the winner for this one is john w burton for nighty night bugs best live action short subject goes to walt disney for grand canyon best documentary short subject goes to ama girls to ben sharpstein Best documentary feature goes to Ben Sharpstein for White Wilderness. Two documentary categories going to the same person. Uh, congrats to you, Ben Sharpstein. Right, that's definitely the first time we've seen that. Yeah. Um, and going on to best foreign language film, th- this one goes to France for My Uncle. Um, okay, remember when I said earlier? Yes. That- <laughs> yes. Yeah. It's it's this. It's film. this movie. Okay. <laughs> yes. What what I looked up a little bit about this movie. And it seems like actually, uh, I shouldn't say it seems like actually, it seems like an interesting plot and design. And it, from reading it, there's a lot of just background noise taking up most of the dialogue. That That's from the brief summary I read, like that's what goes on in this movie. Yeah. Uh, this movie was uh, written and directed and starring Jacques Tati, who is a very famous French comic actor. And... Uh, He's almost like uh, one of the silent comedians, but just in the 1950s and 60s. Uh, He has a character, Mr. Hulot. His films are mostly silent, and they're all like very, not even very slapsticky gags, but it's all gag-based. However, what I dislike about the films of Jacques Tati, which I know is very controversial, sorry. (laughs) Imagine just like, a Charlie Chaplin film in slow motion. The movies are very slow and very patience testing. And when the gags are good, they're great, but it's just a very slow pace for a slapstick comedy movie. And that's not what I want in my slapstick. Americans are much faster is what you're saying. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> the I, I, I feel like that's the case for a lot of movies is I don't want it to be so slow that it's ugh, but you want it to have an Yeah, you want it to yeah. have enough. There's I mean, a there's a fine balance to it. You can still watch Chaplin films and be like engrossed by how fast they move sometimes and just how it's after gag after gag after gag, yeah. But yeah, there is some still there is still some great stuff in the film, but the score for it is like it puts me in my happy place. <laughs> Like, even just, like, outside of it, like, listen to it. That will put you more in France mentally than anything in Gigi would. Oh, wow. Okay. Interesting. And, I'm, and I've been saying how much I love the score for Gigi. Yeah. So to think there's something else you love it, you love more than that, uh, I'll, I'll have to check it out. And interesting, it's another French, uh, or at least French-based film. Uh, have you been to Paris, Austin? Do you want to go? Is there, like, a certain love for the French that you have? <laughs> Uh, I've never been to Europe. Oh, okay. Wow, okay. But, uh, I mean, outside of the music of these two films, I don't have many strong attachments to France. Okay. Well, I'll definitely say you would you would love Europe, and um, whenever you get the chance to go, you'll love it. 
All right. Well, speaking of things I like about France, a movie that I think should have been nominated, but again, I don't know about eligibility, is Elevator to the Gallows, which came out in 1958. That's Louis Mal's first film, and most people know it because it was scored by Miles Davis. It has a great score starring John Rowe. And it, I don't know if they've said it, but I think that it had a huge influence on the Coen brothers. It's one of those movies where it starts out with a crime, and then it's just a domino effect of thing after thing going wrong, just spiraling into this whole giant chaotic mess that while it's not necessarily a comedy, it is kind of very funny just how bad things get from this one decision. And Miles Davis did the score for it? Yeah. All right. I'm in. That's wild. (laughs) I'm so in. Best screenplay based on material from another medium goes to Gigi. Alan J. Lerner from Gigi by Colette. This is Lerner's third and final Academy Award. He previously won Best Original Song for Gigi and won Best Original Screenplay for An American in Paris in 1951. Lerner would also go on to write and receive a nomination for My Fair Lady, which made him the first writer to write three Best Screenplays. The only, ever, the only other writer to do so is Francis Ford Coppola with Patton, The Godfather, and The Godfather Part Two. So... Any other comments, thoughts? We've, we hit on some other lines. Austin, are there any other lines that kind of jumped out to you uh, or any other kind of final thoughts that you have on, on Gigi's screenplay? Uh, I do think that there are very interesting things going on underneath the surface, but I say that as someone that has seen this movie multiple times and can get that now, yeah. which I would not have gotten on my first go around. Yeah, I agree with that. Uh I don't know how di- how different it is from the book. I know that they changed the uncle character a lot, but for this movie to win best screenplay, I feel like they would have to have done like a whole overhaul of the novel for it to win. Cause I just don't see this as a best screenplay winner. Moving on to best story and screenplay written directly for the screen. This one goes to the defiant ones to Nedrick Young and Harold Jacob Smith. The Defiant Ones is a 1958 American adventure drama film that tells the story of two escaped prisoners, one white and one black, who are shackled together and who must cooperate to who must cooperate in order to survive. It stars Tony Curtis and and Sidney Poitier and is directed by Stanley Kramer. This is Netrick Young's and Harold Jacob Smith's first nomination win, but they would later go on to be nominated for Inherit the Wind in 1961. In the opening credits, two guards drive through a stormy night. The two men in the van are actually played by the movie's writers, Harold Jacob Smith and Nathan E. Douglas. The latter of the two, blacklisted at the time, is credited as Nedrick Young for his work on the Oscar-winning screenplay. And Kramer places both credits on the screen underneath the images of the two men in defiance of consistent blacklisting back in the day. Um, So yeah, there's been a lot of blacklisting over the years of the movies we've been talking about. Um, so this is a cool stick it to the man moment uh, for the Defiant Ones. Such an awesome stick it to the man moment, and and such an awesome film. And I thought this was a good time to kind of stop and, and talk about it for a moment. I know Austin, you've seen it as well. One, what a bamf! Like what a badass thing to do. Put the names of the writers on there. There's no way they could ever get past it. Everyone's seeing the names publicly, and you can never kind of take that away. It's awesome. And it's such an amazing story that we can kind of take on and and put ourselves in in that time and that place of Hollywood and what it was actually like and how defiant people were of kind of kicking people out or not properly crediting them. But to the actual film, The Defiant Ones, I 
I was kind of blown away by this movie. Not only were these such incredible performances by Poitier and Curtis, I just was torn. I was just like blown away by how they managed both of their relationship, dealing with it in a pretty subtle way for the time, especially, and then kind of going back and forth between them being chased and them running away using like the really hip exciting like 50s rock music as they're kind of like using the dogs and even all these side characters in the film I thought were like really well thought out and explored and overall I just found it like such an interesting story and and totally worthy in my opinion of a, a best original story here but Austin tell me about your thoughts on the the, the fine ones uh yeah I saw it very recently and I kind of agree with you it's a really good film uh and on the screenplay level, they do have all these very interesting side characters, particularly Big Sam, portrayed by Lon Chaney Jr., who is so good in this movie. Oh, yeah. I really wish he did more dramatic work, because, damn, he's really good in this. As good as Poitier and Curtis are, I, I think he kind of steals the film. Uh, but, yeah, for a movie about a black man and a white man handcuffed to each other from 1957, you would expect it to be, like, very preachy but that is not what this film is at all yeah i think very smartly tony curtis's character he's not like an overt 1957 movie racist where you're meant to hate him he seems to just be very ordinarily racist which is a very weird phrase to say <laughs> but uh yeah they do some very interesting things which i guess slight spoiler but there are a couple moments where he's willing to like sell Sidney Poitier's character out. So they still have him like devaluing like the black person that he's tied to, but while still kind of respecting him in other human moments. It's a very interesting dynamic that they have. I think totally worthy of getting this Oscar. Best supporting actress goes to Wendy Hiller for separate tables as Pat Cooper. This is Hiller's only career win. She had been previously nominated for Best Actress for her role as Eliza Doolittle in, in Pygmalion from 1938. She would go on to be nominated for Best Supporting Actress in 1966 Best Picture winner, A Man for All Seasons. Best Supporting Actor goes to Burl Ives for The Big Country as Rufus Hannessy. This is Ives' only Career Academy Award win. He had previously been nominated for Best Original Song for his version of Lavender Blue in So Dear to My Heart from 1949. Uh, I keep bringing up The Big Country and how much I like the film, and Burl Ives is really good in it. Uh, Burl Ives is an interesting figure. Uh, you'll see, I mean, you just mentioned that he was nominated for Best Original Song. Uh, probably the most the most famous thing that we associate Burl Ives with is uh, he's the voice of Sam the Snowman in the animated Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. Oh. So like the classic recordings of Holly Jolly Christmas and Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer, that's Burl Ives. Okay, that's awesome. Yep. And in the big country, he plays kind of the villain of the film or one of like the main antagonists. So it's very out of character for him. And I think that's part of why he won, but it's also just a great performance. Great movie. Everyone go see The Big Country. Yes, everyone go see it. Uh, it's on our list. And uh, I'm now I'm excited to talk to go see it because of your enthusiasm for it. So um, definitely appreciate that. Best Actress goes to Susan Hayward for I Want to Live as Barbara Graham. 
I Want to Live is a 1958 American biographical film noir directed by Robert Weiss and was nominated six times at the Academy Awards. It follows the life of Barbara Graham, a prostitute and a habitual criminal who is convicted of a murder and faces capital, capital punishment. The screenplay written by Nelson Gidding and Don Mankiewicz was adopted from personal letters written by Graham, in addition to newspaper articles written by Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist Ed Montgomery. Bosley Crowther of the New York Times wrote that her performance was so vivid and so shattering, anyone who could sit through this ordeal without shivering and shuddering is made of stone. Susan Hayward even received 30% of the film's net profits, and Hayward has been nominated a total of five times, but this is her only Oscar win. Best Actor went to David Niven for Separate Tables as Major David Angus Pollock. With 23 minutes and 39 seconds of screen time, Niven's performance in this movie is one of the shortest ever to win an Academy Award for Best Actor in a leading role. Niven also hosted the Academy Award ceremony this year, uh, and he's the only person ever to win an Academy Award at the same ceremony where he was the host. Um, and another note I just want to put on here, there's zero acting nominations for Gigi, um, which is kind of remarkable. I know Chevalier got the honorary award, um, but I thought someone would have gotten a, uh, some kind of supporting nom. Um, you know, nomination. So it's kind of awkward to me that it won all these awards and did such a sweep, but it couldn't get an acting nomination. So it kind of is like, well, why, why didn't it get it? So I, I thought at least it could have gotten that. I don't know if any of you guys have thoughts or if you f feel strongly about a certain character in Gigi that should have been nominated for an award. Um, so I'll toss it to you, Austin, if you had anyone in mind. Uh, I do really like Leslie Caron in the film, but the best actress category is really good. I mean, Rosalind Russell is iconic as Auntie Mame. Elizabeth Taylor is iconic as Maggie and Kalahatan Roof. Susan Hayward is excellent. I want to live. Uh, I haven't seen Separate Tables, but Deborah Carr is a great actress. Shirley McLean, I think, overdoes it a little bit in Sunken Running, but that's just like the other slot that would have gone to Leslie Caron. So I'm not upset about her not getting nominated. It is a good year for Best Actress. And I mean, kind of the same thing for Best Actor. I mean, Spencer Tracy, I haven't, see, I haven't seen Old Man in the Sea, but Spencer Tracy's great. I haven't seen Separate Tables, but if you could win for not even 24 minutes of screen time, it's got to be a great performance. Paul Newman's great in Cattle Hotch and Roof, and the dual leads of Tony Curtis and Cindy Poitier. I mean, that takes up two slots right there. And I don't know if Louis Jordan is really good enough to warrant getting nominated. No. Probably not. I could have, again, I could have seen Chevalier get it, but everyone else I think was a little, w there wasn't enough where I would have been okay with a nomination there. I feel like they should have gotten it. Best director goes to Vincent Minnelli for Gigi. Minnelli was previously nominated for An American in Paris, but this is his first Oscar win. What I found was really interesting is that Minnelli's first job was actually helping to design windows, window displays at giant department store at the giant department store Marshall Field and Company, which might allude to the incredibly packed sets in Gigi. And another fun fact about Minnelli is he was married to Judy Garland from 1945 until 1951, and the couple are the parents of Liza Minnelli. So a couple of fun facts. I wanted to specifically point out the giant department store and, and window displays because this film very much feels sometimes looking at a window display. It can feel 
kind of hollow if you don't look into it. I think further watching it kind of shows more of the subtlety, but just watching it from afar. And I think if you were to just walk in midway through this film, it would almost feel like a beautiful window display, beautiful costumes, sets. There's so much jam packed in to, to look at it. Um, but yeah, any, any thoughts or any comments about uh, Manelli? Um, I, uh, I think I've said my piece <laughs> about the direction of this movie. Um, I forgot that he didn't win for an American in Paris, so I kind of feel like he was robbed for that for that <laughs> one at least. Um, especially because I, I think at that time he went through the divorce with Trudy Garland, so I can imagine the stress that that must have uh, you know the toll that must have taken on him. But um, yeah, I think I said my piece about uh, his directing in this movie. Uh, I I think it's almost a deserved win. I mean, it's certainly not the most interestingly directed film, but this movie was such a massive undertaking in such a short amount of time that, I mean, just for him to be the leader and pull it off is a feat in and of itself. And I also think that Minnelli's made so many classic films that this is kind of like a, we have a movie that you can win for, so we're going to give it to you now. Uh, I mean, I said before that uh, he made again. He made some came running the same year, and one other film whose title I don't I don't remember. So that could also be be brought into it. A lot, a lot of people really love some came running, so they could have really been voting for that film while voting for this film. And uh, just to bring back Linklater for a minute, I think that you see a lot of Vincent Minnelli in Richard Linklater's films. It's like the very wide shots, the very long takes letting the actors fully act their performances, letting everything flow about naturally. And also the very varied filmography that Manelli has. He has biopics. He has like, you know, like wartime dramas. He has plenty of musicals. He has a very varied filmography. And I think he's a much more interesting figure than people give him credit for. So moving on now to the best motion picture category, the nominees are separate tables, the Defiant Ones, Cat on a Hot Tin Roof, Anti-Mame, and our winner of the 1958 Best Picture Award goes to Gigi, producer Arthur Freed. Uh, Gigi <laughs> had the most clean most clean sweep, the most amount of wins uh, at the time, and for amounts that won. So if you go back, Wings won two for two, Grand Hotel went one for one, It Happened One Night went five for five, and then Gigi in 1958 went nine for nine which is the most ever uh which was surpassed year, a year later by ben hur um and then the clean sweep got surpassed by the lord of the rings for 11 for 11 uh in 2003 so the day after the movie won uh nine oscars mgm telephone operators were instructed to answer all phone calls with hello mggm that must have gotten old quickly. And also, Gigi was the last film until The Last Emperor in 1987 to win Best Picture without any acting nominations. So before we give any of our own stats and what we feel about this movie, uh, let's give some numbers for how other people feel about this movie. So Rotten Tomatoes currently gives it an 81% fresh rating with an average Rotten Tomatoes rating of 7.53. The Topps Critics percentage give it a 75% with an average rating of 8.8 out of 10. The audience score is a 74% with a 3.84 out of 5. IMDb gives it a 6.7. Metacritic did not even give it a rating at all. And it went 9 for 9 for all of its acting, uh, for all of its Academy Award 
uh, nominations. So um, I don't know who to pose this one to first, so I'll <laughs> give it to Austin. Austin, what would you rate Gigi? I'm kind of going with Rotten Tomatoes here. I'm feeling a 75. All right. All right, John. Uh, we'll go down the ladder. Yeah. <laughs> I would give uh, Gigi a 40 out of 100. You know, I, I still just don't like the story. I wish I knew more about the characters and wish I got more invested. And yeah, I just kind of got out of it and, and lacked more from it. And in terms of other films, uh, Grand Hotel is also a 40 for me. Uh, anything below that, I think my lowest is still Broadway Melody. But yeah, 40 just felt like it's it's definitely below average for me. I wish it was more. I did actually appreciate it more talking to Austin, someone who loves the music and, and the soundtrack. I definitely got more out of it. And uh, yeah, big pounding the back for you, Austin. I appreciate that. And it's something that I would not completely say don't watch it. You know, if you're into the Parisian culture, if you love seeing a kind of like take, you know, watch a film and get taken to a certain place in time. I think there's value to that, to this film in particular. And there's almost value in watching a film that is kind of uh, disturbing and taboo, as we've kind of talked about. Is there? <laughs> <laughs> well, tell me, Ben, what did you rate it? Yeah, so... I do. I want to start this off by saying, Austin, you are great. It's awesome to have you on here as a guest. And yeah, you added. Great to talk to you guys again. Yeah. It, it, it's been a long time. It has been a long time. And I, I appreciate the enthusiasm you brought to this movie. I now have to say, though, if you weren't here, I think I would have been much more passionate and fiery about why I disliked this movie. When I first watched this movie, and, and I was giving it ratings when I first watched all these movies, um, I gave it a 15. And that was really because I was so upset by the subject matter of the movie. I was really just pissed. And especially because coming off of like the bridge on the river Kwai is the movie before, like I, like at the time when I watched these movies, I did them all back because during the pandemic, I had nothing else to do. So it was like every day I would watch one. So like coming off of the bridge on the river Kwai and then like Marty from a few years before and like on the waterfront, like there's so many great movies that I fell so much in love with. To then get this, I was so disappointed and so disheartened. And I I was like, I, I could not believe that that was the subject matter of a Best Picture winner about a young girl. Follow, like, not like not even like a Lolita type of way, but just to, like the way it was presented in this movie was so like, what the fuck? And then you add that whole like suicide, fake suicide, however you want to phrase it, into that the lack of cinematography or lack of musical choreography the lack of coverage, the misuse of CinemaScope, uh, the music. I know you two loved it. It wasn't my favorite um, musical um, and the way it was presented. So I kind of do want to bump it up a little bit, but I, I don't know. And I want to bump it up because we had like a great conversation about it. But I think for uh, I'm just going to leave it as is as because it really is not my favorite. It's my least favorite movie of all the best picture winners. Having seen them all, I, I really like. Broadway Melody is a close second to like my least favorite. So I really don't like Gigi. I appreciate the conversation that we had about it, but I, I really for best picture winner, I expect I expect a lot more and I the technical aspects just didn't do enough for me. I think that Cecil Beaton's production design is the, the costume design I mean and then the, the production design is what saved this movie, but it it just you, if those are the only good aspects like what else makes the movie if there's no good story no good technical aspects um for me so um might seem really harsh i know i go all over the spectrum um 
but I'll just leave it at that. So uh, I'm going to pose the question that we all love to answer. And I'll pose it to you first, Austin, which is, is Gigi worthy of the Best Picture Award of 1958? Given the nominees, yes. Wow. Okay. okay. Tell me more. Uh, I mean, there are a lot of great films in 1958. Uh, I don't even know if Gigi would be in my top five for the year. But, Cat, I mean, looking at the other nominees, Auntie Mame, I think, is very overrated. Cat on a Hot Tin Roof is very good, but it's very much just like a film stage play kind of thing. Separate tables I haven't seen. The Defiant ones I really like and I think would also be worthy. But and if you look at like the films that have won that are like very light, fun films, I do think Gigi is one of the better ones that have. So I'm going to say it's worthy among the nominees of that one. If something like The Big Country or Touch of Evil or Ashes and Diamonds were nominated, it would be a different story. Or even Vertigo were nominated to be a different story, but they weren't. So Gigi. All right, John. I think that's a total fair way of looking at it. For me personally, I would say it's not worthy. I think The Defiant Ones is a much, much more powerful film. I think it kind of shows where we are in 1958. It pushes boundaries. Uh, it was a closed set at the time when they were making the film because it was so controversial that they didn't even want the word of what they were even making to kind of go out. And I just think, you know, not every extremely powerful political commentary film, you know, should be presented and, and be best picture worthy just because of that. But I think this film does it in a, in a sophisticated way where we learn a lot about these characters. It's a really engaging story with even engaging side characters. And I was really blown away by all the technical elements. I think it's beautifully shot. It has such a great uh, audio recording with the the uh, song that keeps kind of coming through from Poitier. And I just loved it. I mean, Tony Curtis and Poitier, they're, they're phenomenal in the film and they really carry it. And I would have to give that as, as my worthy film for this year. But Ben, I need to know, I'm, I'm awaiting <laughs> your 15 out of a hundred to see if you think this is worthy or not. No, it's, uh, it's not worthy. Uh, this movie's not worthy to me. I, I think I, I've said a lot about it. It just, I think if people want to go see it, go ahead. Um, but in terms of all the other best picture winners out of the 90, what are we at? 94 total right now. Um, it's 94 out of 94 for me. It's, I don't know. It, it's very shocking. I, I asked my grandmother, like, why, like, what did people like about Gigi? Like, what, what was it? And she said, oh, it was Marie Chevalier. Like, that was it. And then I was like, and you do recognize, like, what this movie's about. And then she was like, oh, you're right. But Marie Chevalier was so good. <laughs> so it, it's funny to hear, like, that perspective of someone who is alive and experienced it um, at that time. So, uh, Austin, it's been great having you. Do you have any final thoughts on Gigi, Best Picture winners in general, the state of movies, of the Oscars, the floor is yours. What I'll say with Gigi, if you trust their opinions over mine, here's what you do. You watch it. You can put it on in the background. You can only watch it once. It's fine. Then just listen to it on Spotify. <laughs> Although when Thank Heaven for Little Girls comes on, maybe do a private session. But... <laughs> That's totally fair. So, uh, yeah, thank you for having me. Yeah. This was a lot of fun. Awesome. Uh, we appreciate you, Austin. We'll definitely talk more. So, uh, that's it. So, I'm Ben. And I'm John. And, and this, this is Worthy. Gaston, please. No newspapers, no scandal. Madame, will you do me the honor, the favor? Give me the infinite joy of bestowing on me Gigi's hand in marriage.
thank him. Get bigger every day. Thank heaven for little girl. They grow up in the most delightful way. Those little eyes so helpless and appealing. One day will flash and send you crashing through the ceiling. Thanks for listening to Worthy, the breakdown of every Best Picture winner from past to present. You can listen to us wherever you get your podcasts. Check us out on Instagram at Worthy Podcast, on Twitter at Worthy Pod, and on Facebook at Worthy Podcast. Any inquiries can be submitted to worthysubmissions at gmail.com. Again, that's worthysubmissions at gmail.com.